Yo, yo, disparate perpetrators of philosophy, how are you doing? Stefan Molyneux from Free Domain Radio. Don't forget, freedomainradio.com slash donate to help us out. We need your support more than ever. We are gonna win, but we need your help. freedomainradio.com slash donate. Great show tonight. We had a mom call in who was just a little bit frustrated at seeing where the world was going, how it seems to be declining into chaotic socialist madness, and what can we do to stay happy and positive during these challenging times? Great set of questions, and um, we had a really powerful conversation about that. And then we had a fine young black gentleman call in from the States saying, hey, what is it up with the media? Never pointing out how many blacks are Republicans. I just did an interview with Dinesh D'Souza about that kind of stuff. And uh, I wanted to have a conversation with him about that. And it was a great conversation. He brought a huge amount to the table. Now, the third caller wanted to know how environmentalism is going to work in a free society. If we don't have the state, if we don't have the EPA, if we don't have regulations, how on earth can we be sure that we're going to have, you know, good, clean air and water and ground and all that kind of stuff? And I took a new approach and always challenging myself to take a new approach to these questions. So if you've heard it before, you ain't heard this one before. And then the fourth one was about uh, RK selection. So please go and listen to Gene Wars, G-E-N-E Wars, at youtube.com slash radio. You can listen to it at fdrpodcast.com to get up to speed on that. And um, his question was around, is it R or K selected to want an old age pension when you get older? So we talked about that. It was a great show. Don't forget, please, follow me on Twitter at Stefan Molyneux. You can, of course, use our affiliate link, fdrurl.com slash Amazon. You know the rest. Here we go. All right. Well, up first today, we have Megan. Megan wrote in and said, I'm a 31-year-old wife and mother who finds it very frustrating to have to participate in a state of society. Reading the newspaper is absolutely infuriating at times, and I often find it very difficult to live among the idiocy of the many. My question to Stefan is, how do you best cope and succeed in statist societies? For me, the latest trigger was reading about Canada's newest social program, Cash for Kids. I am pissed, as this program ensures thousands of innocent children will be born into families for the wrong reasons. Ultimately, this will lead to many of these children being victims of abuse and neglect. And the ramifications will be generational. We can expect increases in crime, substance abuse, and further dependency on the government. It is just a vicious cycle and continual perpetuation of force. It is hard not to feel handcuffed and trapped. That's from Megan. But other than that, you enjoy it? Yeah, yeah. Hi, Stephanie. Okay. Yeah. Just look, looking for that old silver lining. I know, always. I know. I, I, uh, I wrote that pretty late at night, and I was like, man, I was really upset. Yeah, I definitely couldn't go to sleep after. Just, uh, I get pretty frustrated. I get really upset and annoyed. And then, uh, yeah, I just, I feel like maybe it's, it's sometimes hard to see the positive in uh, participating, I guess, in society in general. <laughs> Which is, I know, I know. yeah, yeah. Yeah, go on, go on. Well, I I mean, I don't want to be a victim because I know that's not the place to go. And I don't want to act like, oh, well, it's all being done to me. And this is all like, I want to try to rise above it. But at the same time, I find it really hard not to get really bogged down in it and among it, especially when I don't have like both my husband and I, we're, we're on the same page. But as far as like 
friends and family were pretty much on our own. Like there's not a lot of close friends we'd have, we have that we really relate to in terms of our philosophy or how we look at life and the government or anything like that. So it, it becomes just monotonous and you just start feeling like, oh God, like we got to get out of here. But then where do we go? I don't know. It just, it's really frustrating at times. Yeah. It sounds like there's a lot of self-management involved. This is what I feel. I shouldn't feel this. I should rise above it. You know what I mean? Like there's yeah, a lot yeah. of um, non-spontaneous organic response to environment. You know what I mean? Um, let me think about that. So basically, yeah, like I'm, yeah, like I want to try to get myself to be okay. But then at the same time, I still get annoyed. I don't know. It's hard. I don't know. No, and, and what I mean by that is you feel annoyed, but then you tell yourself you shouldn't be annoyed. Exactly. Or it's some, this phrase, rise above, take the high road and stuff, just my personal thoughts, Megan, I hate that stuff. I hate Take the high road. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Take the high road. How about giving people responsibility for their life choices? No. <laughs> we must take the high road. And it's like, I'm, I, I'm not interested in taking the high road. I'm not interested in suppressing frustration and anger. I'm not interested in nagging myself or lecturing myself or saying, oh, those feelings, they're in the category bad. They're in the category unproductive. They're in the category of whatever, right? I mean, no, the, the feelings are the feelings and they're very important and they're there to help you, to help society and to help those that the government pretends to be helping right now. And so uh, I try not to um, nag myself. I'm not saying you are, but I'm saying for myself, I try not to nag myself into this feeling good, this feeling bad, this feeling productive, this feeling unproductive, this feeling has utility, this feeling does not have utility and so on. And, um, uh, that kind of self-management, it can consume a lot of cycles as they say in the computer industry, right? Can consume a lot of your mind. Right. I could, I, yeah, I get that. And I think, uh, I, yeah, that's totally true. I think I do do that. I kind of feel like, well, I can control, like I am a bit of a control freak. Like I like to things to go a certain way and yeah, I guess I probably do just try to self-manage. Well, and, and control freaks go crazy over government. Yeah, I do feel like <laughs> Right, because it, it's like you've got some hobo, like you want to keep your floors clean, you want to keep your, your nice white <laughs> exactly. carpet and your nice white couches clean and there's some soot-stained hobo <laughs> playing Twister with a stinky-ass giraffe. And you know, that has diarrhea and you're like, I got to control it. It's like, ah, right. <laughs> That's so true. You could just feel like completely controlled by it. Like you cannot get rid of it. It's just the stain that never goes away. It's like constantly there. And, uh, it's hard to be ugh. like, how do you be okay with that? Basically? Like, yeah, it's, it's yeah. control spelt with a K cause it's K selected and control freaks, uh, for want of a better phrase, I, I would say it's people with self-discipline, you know, maybe it can metastasize a little too far, but Society is – I just been working on this presentation on Rome and uh, I, I went into my <laughs> fugue state for recording the presentation this afternoon and I, I came out – it was like an hour and a half later. I was still only two-thirds done. But, but in it, there's this idea that we are free through self-discipline because freedom has come to mean license. It's come to mean hedonism. It's come to mean, well, whatever I want to do that makes me feel good, I'm going to do and that's called freedom. And the, 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 the argument that has been around since antiquity, which we've kind of lost these days, is freedom um, is the result of self-discipline. In other words, you are free to climb stairs if you're not 400 pounds. You are you know, free to have a happy marriage if you are disciplined uh, and uh, about who you get married to. And you, you choose someone based on values and virtues and, and not just you know, mere physical attractiveness and so on. And you are free... 
to retire early if you've been self-disciplined about saving your money. You are free to get a great job if you've been self-disciplined enough to educate yourself or be educated in some economically productive way. And so freedom results from self-discipline. Freedom is not just freedom from aggression or now it's become to like, I want to be free to go to school and not pay my loans back, (laughs) whatever's going on with the leftist uh, nonsense uh, uh, in the DNC. But freedom is not licentiousness. Freedom is what you gain as the fruit of self-discipline. And the government, of course, is the complete opposite of that because the government takes from people who have self-discipline and gives to people who don't. It takes from smarter people and it gives to dumber people. It, 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 it takes from market-facing people and gives to politically connected people. And it is this rampaging, soot-stained, farty hobo, you know, <laughs> rummaging through your lovely white living area. And it is it really tweaks because there is an opposition, right? To, to have self-control means that the state is going to profit from you at your expense. And to have licentiousness means that the state is going to subsidize you. Yeah, and so the fact that control freaks are bothered by the state, well, if you are a control freak, so to speak, you don't need the state because you have self-discipline. And, um, yeah, so if this makes, I think that's how I would tie it together. Yeah, no, it makes total sense. That's, uh, it's how I feel exactly. Like basically I trust myself. I know there's consequences to, to my decisions and I expect to have consequences. And if I make good choices, I expect good outcomes. And I just feel like for some reason, people don't see that in the same vein. And I, I don't understand why, like, why is it that we have to, like, why do we have to provide for people? Like, and this whole, like, giving money to people to have kids, it really bothers me. Like, why would you want the worst people to have the most kids? Like, why would you want to incentivize it? It's just, like, propping up, like, a system that, like, basically you're just going to have kids born into the worst homes and be abused. And I just, the thought of that just makes me sick to my stomach that people would be like, oh, yeah, well, they're just, we should give all the money to the poor people because they didn't get there by any of their own doing. It's all just chance and luck. And then we'll just, it's just their kids. And, like, all they're going to do is take advantage and have more kids and then abuse more kids. And just, and if you say that, you're just a greedy, like, you don't care. You're just completely selfish. And it's just, I, I don't know. It's, I, it's really hard to find people who you can relate to and talk to. Because if I say this, I did make a post on Facebook and people were just so angry at me, like just saying how I was being greedy. And if I was to say like, I must make over X amount of dollars and I'm bad for that. And I'm just like, what? Like, this is just insane. Like, uh, anyways. Well, and so just to give people some political context, um, new Canada child benefit program payments start today. Tax-free payments will be higher for lower income families. And uh, there's a picture. It seems a little bit stereotypical, uh, but um, it's a, a black woman with her two kids and she's overweight. Is there a father? <sighs> Nowhere in the picture does there appear to be a uh, father. And uh, what's it going to cost? $22.4 billion over five years. It also won't be indexed to inflation until 2020. You see, they they don't want to do it right now. 
And um, it's uh, so there was an old system, right? It was 160 bucks per child per month for children under six years of age. And then 60 bucks a month for children aged six to 17. And um, I guess... <laughs> I, I guess what was annoying about that one is anyone who thinks, whoa, I have a child, but it's okay because I'm getting 160 bucks a month for my child who's under six. And it's like, if that seems like a good deal for you, you shouldn't yeah. be having ch children because it's going to cost you a lot more than that in lost time, lost income, lost sleep, just general yeah. basic expenses. 60 bucks a month, that should cover everything to do with childcare. <sighs> and uh, so now, now families with children under the age of six could receive as much as $6,400 per child per year. And you can get a maximum of 5400 bucks, six and 17. And um, it's theirs to spend, um, says governor of the Bank of Canada. Of course, when they spend it, it has secondary effects. Now, if you're the governor of the Bank of Canada, I assume you're not a mouth-breathing, plasticine-brained brain retard. And um, of course, of course, you if you if you give money to people and they spend it, the stuff they spend it on is stimulated. But so what? So what? I mean, it's like saying, well, you know, if someone wins the lottery, they're going to be spending a lot of money. That's really good for the economy. In fact, everyone should just buy a lottery ticket and then we shouldn't work <laughs> because it's going to stimulate so much economic activity. It's like, well, okay, so somebody wins a million or 10 million bucks, but what about everyone who spent their money on lottery tickets instead of everything else? It's free economic stimulus to take people from some people, run it through a big scouring the edge of value off bureaucratic lower intestine nightmare sandpaper destroy value bureaucracy and then give them the remnants. They spend it. Ooh, it's magic. Oh, it is. I mean, it is. Uh, and um, this kind of stupid stuff is going to continue. Yeah. And so you just kind of got to get used to it, I guess, until things just take care of themselves. Or do you just, I don't even know. Like, I guess, yeah, you just kind of just got to watch it happen. Be autonomous and just keep going. <laughs> just keep. Well, look, there, there's ways to care for people and there's ways to appease people. Clearly, the Canadian government is not wildly interested in the quality of children's lives because no. if the canadian government was interested in the quality of children's lives it would stop loading them down with hundreds of thousands of yeah, dollars of debt that's, yeah, that's by the time they're born right so clearly number i mean the two basic things when people say oh well, the government cares about children number one national debt come yeah. on if you care about children stop loading them down with hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt before they're even born number one number two jamming them into government-controlled mandatory forced education with crappy socialized teachers is terrible. I mean, did you go to school in Canada? Yeah, I did. Yeah. Public and what school. was your experience? I don't mean to project my experience on yours, <laughs> but what was your experience of Canadian schools? Well, I grew up in a small town, so it was a very small, small school, small class. And I feel like it might have been a bit different than perhaps everywhere else because it was conservative, it was quite conservative. And I feel like our teachers really, they weren't really part of this whole like leftist agenda they were I, they were old school in a lot of ways so i feel are like you, are I, you having trouble pronouncing the word white yeah i guess I don't, am i wrong about really that or? that sounds bad but uh i don't i don't know it was i think that i ha i was lucky in that regard that i got a different viewpoint because we were 
like questioned and we would watch current events and everything was like, it wasn't just like go along with the, like the whatever doctrine the government lays out. I feel like it was a little bit better, but I mean, I'm scared for my son and where he's going to have to, like, I don't want him in public school because I can just imagine like talking to teachers. Now I have some friends that are teachers and it just sounds awful. Like it just sounds like not a good place to be like, not a good environment as far as what they have to teach. One of my good friends, she's a teacher and uh, it doesn't sound that great. Right. So it is, you know, so what is going on here? Is it care for the children? Of course it's not. Because again, national debt, crappy government schools, and you could go on and on. All programs that promote single motherhood um, directly detract from children's happiness. So why is this woman who's working full-time not able to survive? She's working full-time. Well, she's a Toronto social worker yeah. with a net income of about $30,000 who lives in community housing. There's not one market-facing statement in any of that. Toronto social worker paid by the government with a net income of about 30000 So the government's underpaying her because she's working for the government, I assume. Maybe she's working for some private charity, but I imagine it's working for the government. Mm-hmm. So... She's a social worker with an income of about $30,000, lives in community housing. So there's more government subsidies and control. As a single mother of four children between the ages of 6 and 17. And, of course, all of these benefits are tax-free, right? As a single mother of four children between the ages of 6 and 17. And do you know what she says? She says, you know, there's this whole stigma that you're lazy, You just want the money, but it has nothing to do with that. I work a full-time job, 40 hours a week, and I still live in poverty. You know why? You got four kids and no husband. That's why you're living in poverty. It's not because the government isn't giving you a lot of money. It's because you've got four children and no husband. Cross your legs. Save civilization. (laughs) There should be consequences. I don't understand where the consequences are. What's the problem with that? Get your vacuum vagina out of my wallet, please. I've got my own child I'd like to save some money for, if you don't mind. But what can you say? You can't can't say say that. Well, I think I figured out why you're poor. (laughs) You have four children and no husband. You know, this this is the equivalent from a male standpoint. Are you ready? Yeah, yeah. Okay, you're a reporter and I'm complaining. Are you ready? Mm -hmm. You know, um, Megan, a a reporter, there's this weird thing that's going on. I mean, I work full time and I have four 1960s sport cars that I'm rebuilding. (laughs) And weirdly, I don't have a lot of leftover money. So, you see, what I need is government subsidies to close the gap of this mysterious where's my money gone stuff. I also have a cocaine habit (laughs) and a subscription service to just about every video and game portal in the known universe. I also have nine Xboxes. And so it's kind of weird. Like, I'm I'm making okay coin, but just at the end of the day or the end of the month, I find I don't have a lot of money. And so... I just, I need subsidies for my sports cars and my Xboxes and my subscription services and all that. Now, that wouldn't be a big mystery, 
Would yeah, it? people could actually object and pe- it wouldn't be such a big deal. You could say, well, yeah. And then everybody would be like, oh, it's outrageous. This is so wrong. But you're not allowed to say that. To uh, like, You yeah. banged losers. Yeah. You banged <laughs> losers and you did not wear protection. And now I have to pay all your bills. Ugh. Can you say that? No. Well, not with a lot of, like, fight. There's a big fight back. And then, yeah, I feel like you have to censor yourself. Like, I find... I rolled the sperm dice. Yeah. <laughs> Snake eyes every time. Oh, man. And, and it's, know. you know, I do I blame this woman in particular? Not really. Those are the incentives that are set up, and nobody's telling her the truth. I know, yeah, it's true. Right? I mean, if if she didn't get all these subsidies, social worker paid by the government in community housing, now getting thousands and thousands of dollars tax-free because she banged guys who aren't around. Well, it's kind of hard, you know, because I'm, I'm assuming that she's not the brightest searchlight in the array. And so she's going to respond off short-term incentives. Yeah. And um, the short-term incentives are, yeah, I guess I can bang guys who aren't going to stick around because big daddy government's going to swoop in, scoop up money from more responsible people and deposit it in my irresponsible cleavage. So, um that's just the way things are, and it's tragic. Do I blame her or no? Do I blame the politicians? No. I mean, the politicians, what the hell are they going to do, Megan? Are they going to sit there and tell the truth? Yeah, that does Maybe you could find a man who likes you enough to <laughs> stick around. Maybe you could be a nice enough partner that the men think, wow, I can't find anyone better than this. This woman is the very, very best. Well, yeah. Very best. Very best. I can't possibly do any better, so I'm going to stick with this one. It's just, you know, a possibility because the politicians aren't going to say that. Why? Because the media is going to go all up in arms about them. And can you imagine this woman is a social worker. She counsels the poor. I'm going to just go out on a limb here and say she counsels the poor on how to get more tax money from you and from me and from the other three people who are currently contributing to the system who are left in Canada. Yeah, and that's that's exactly it. They'll just continue to take and take. I don't think it's going to last. Like, I'm just... Like, oh, it's not going to last. Yeah, I'm just wondering. And this like, is the cruelty, right? This is the real cruelty. They are enablers. They are the people giving drugs to the drug addict. They're giving cocaine to the cocaine addict. And the cocaine cocaine addict is like, oh, thank you, thank you. Oh, that's great. Fantastic. Yes, I'm just going to – off they go, right? Yeah. You know, with their razor and their credit card and their lack of a future. And so if you withhold the drug from the addict – I don't know if you've ever been around an addictive person. But if you withhold the drug from the addict, what happens? Yeah, they just go nuts. They go insane with rage. Yeah, yeah. Insane with rage. And the media will back them right up. Oh, yeah, absolutely. The media is like the worst friend in the world to civilization, the mainstream media, because they're sitting there going, oh, yeah, you totally deserve it. You're a heroic single mother, and the government is withholding that which is rightfully yours. And and, how how are these kids supposed to eat? And Right, they're just goading them up, you know? You know what he said about you? He said that you were a backstabbing bitch. Like the kind of whispery Iago style people who just go around sowing divisions and hostility and offensiveness and offense between people and so on. And the media would just go right in there. And it's like, oh, no, a smidgen of truth. Kill it, kill it, kill it, kill it. <laughs> yeah. Responsibility? No. And, and this, is, this is the racism. I mean, we know that this is, there's minorities who are more involved in this stuff, and it's also um, the indigenous population yeah, and so on. Yeah, I was going to say, it's just like going to create a widespread reserve-style life, like everywhere. Like it's just Now she be can like, go and have more kids. Yeah, she, and why wouldn't she? Like just, it would be better for her, and then she can maybe quit her job and stay home with them. Just, right. 
Right. And then when the money runs out, then as it will, when the money runs out, who is going to suffer the most? Yeah, those kids. And that's the part. I, yeah, those kids. Because they're just going to end up, they're going to be just propped up. And then as soon as they're 18, now you have nothing. Your parents have made the worst decisions. And now you're going to have to start at ground zero. It's just... Ground zero? That would be better than just starting a big <laughs> hole. Oh, I know. It's just, it just, I, I just don't understand. But it's not just like, if you talk to any, like, I just, I can't find, like, there's nobody in our family that would be like, oh, yeah, this is a bad idea. Like, it's just, you say that and they're like, oh, you're just completely heartless. How could you be so heartless? I just don't understand why it's so hard to explain to even it's people not, who are. Come on. No, no, <laughs> Megan. I mean, seriously, you are a very intelligent woman. I'm going to go out, not even out on a limb and say that. We all know why this money is going this way. It's out of fear. It's, I, it's like it, people will tell themselves all sorts of stuff about how they care. And, yeah, don't yeah. Care. It's not true at all. They're afraid of riots. I mean, that's just, it's a shakedown. That's, I mean, come on. I mean, you so know they're this. They're willing to just be like hurt, like basically hurt future kids. Like just be like, okay, yeah, I'll just sacrifice those kids. Doesn't matter. Like we'll just throw caution to the wind. If that, got, if that single mom has like six more kids and an abusive stepdad that comes in and out, that's fine. Like it's okay because she's getting our money and that just pays for our conscience. Like they just don't care. I just like, sorry to interrupt. I just like to pause on comes in and out. I just want to oh, pause yeah. on that phrase for people's enjoyment. Um, <laughs> that's right. There was but, no uh, pun intended. No, they don't. Uh, I know. But they don't, they don't <laughs> care about the kids. I mean, the kids, the kids problems are in another neighborhood 15 years down the road. Uh, what they care about is if these Poorer people aren't going to get their money. They're going to riot. And I'm not talking about the black population. It could be any, anyone. But it's now gotten to the point where all we're doing is buying 10 more minutes apiece. Yeah. Like, like Marilyn Mosby, right? So there was this Freddie Gray. Six officers were charged in the death of Freddie Gray. Ugh, and the amount of like what I would call mildly unprofessional behavior on the part of the prosecutor's office, you know, things like not turning over exculpatory evidence to the defense and so on. So a bunch of people got acquitted and all the charges have been dropped. Uh-huh. And now they're suing her for malicious prosecution. I think that's, really? that's what's going on. You can check. But the reality is, why did she charge these, these officers to try and prevent riots? Uh, yeah, so they didn't have Ferguson or... Yeah. yeah. Or, or, or what's worse is... Um, after the officers were acquitted in the Rodney King beating, I mean, there was, what, a, over a billion dollars worth of damage and untold casualties uh, in, in the riots. And the reason, so it, it's it's to do with fear of rioting. And even that is not the fundamental thing. The fundamental thing is not even the fear of rioting because riots are fairly easy to quell if you act decisively. If you just like arrest yeah. people and, you know, do what is necessary to to prevent the rioting. But then they're afraid that there's going to be pictures all over the place and and then there's going to be investigations and so on. Right. And and so everyone's paralyzed because of all of this uh, hysterical political correctness and the fact that the media whips people up into these feral frenzies when the in order to push a particular narrative that's usually in the states, at least pro pro Democrat. Right. So if anyone talks about cutting welfare. Of course, there's heartlessness, but if you point that out, then you'll say, well, 
cutting welfare is code for hating blacks, right? That's I mean, This used to be the case uh, under Reagan, right? Wanted to cut welfare. He was talking about the welfare queens, and everyone said, oh, it's a dog whistle. He means blacks. And um, it, 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 it's actually compassion and care for minorities or anybody who's poor that you'd want to cut welfare because people who are poor are generally less intelligent, not one-to-one, but in general, they're less intelligent, which means that they need more immediate cues on what to do. Yeah, right. Because their horizon of calculation, time preference is kind of shorter, right? And so this gives them the entirely wrong cues. And then by the time the disaster shows up, the real tragedy then occurs. And so your family, they... They don't want to be called racist. They don't want riots. And it's all – everything to me is is just a um, – because look, <laughs> let me let me give you sort of one, one last example. If there was this um, – if there was this real belief that we care about the kids and uh, we want to help the kids and so on, right? Mm-hmm. So you, you grew up, it sounds like, in a pretty stable home and a stable environment and all that kind of stuff. Uh, Good well- for you. Kind of. No, Sorry. actually, no. my mom, actually, she was a single parent. And I have no trouble telling her, like, she was a single mom. She had me when I was 18. And yeah, she got... Right. She had you when she was 18. Yeah, she she was... I mean, if she had you when you were 18... Yeah, oh, sorry. That had plenty. Yeah. <laughs> you okay in there? Yeah, Do you want no. me to swallow a ball so you have something to play with? I guess I was... Yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> yeah, to be clear, no. So I didn't grow up in a stable home. I grew up... I was pretty unlucky as far as, like, that goes. But first, I basically... I've been able to be smart enough to look at what my parents did and know, like, just do exactly opposite. I just okay. have, yeah. Okay, all right, all right. Yeah. So th- this is even better as far as this communication point goes. So did you have as much parental time and attention and financial rewards or financial resources? No. Megan, when you were a kid, as your friends who had two-parent households? No, definitely not. No. No. Right. Okay. So... Who is more responsible for their situation, adults or children? Yeah, definitely the children. Well, I mean, they were the ones that were supposed to be responsible, but I felt... Well, the adults are more responsible. Yeah, exactly. But I guess for me, I always grew up thinking, like, I'm going to fix this situation and get out of it. No, no, hang on, before we get all that. (laughs) Okay. Now, when you were a kid, were you expected to do work at the same level as other children who had more resources, more parental time and attention, uh, and so on? Yeah, you didn't get the single mom break. No. Because, you know, the other parents, the you know, other kids had two parents to help them with the homework. You had one who was probably really busy and not able or available that much to help, right? Yeah. Okay. So if we care about children, then we should, I think, recognize that there are some children who are significantly disadvantaged because of their home environment. And therefore, we should cut those kids some slack when it comes to Marks and grading. Now, I'm not saying that would be a good idea. I'm just saying that following this same logic. In other words, if we should take from more responsible adults and give to less responsible adults, if we should take money, then surely we should also take grades from children who are just luckier and give it to children who are less lucky. And that's not right. No. No, no. But by that logic. Yeah. It's following the same idea. Yeah. Because the adults are responsible and we're still saying we should take money. And give it to the less responsible adults and their adults. So clearly we should take marks uh, uh, and and take them. So all the straight-A students, and maybe a lot of them come <laughs> from sort of two, two-parent households and so on. So we got to take some grades from them, you know, maybe a full letter grade or, or 10 points or whatever, and give it to the poorer kids, the kids who don't have the, the same resources, right? Because they don't. 
Yeah. Don't even have, like I, I spent half my childhood in the library, and, and but a lot of you know, the, you don't even have to buy those books if if your parents. Are. So the idea that that we care about the kids, well, if you started saying that, well, look, you know, kid, you're lucky. You just happen to come from a rich household. You just happen to have two parents, and they're both educated and so on. Whereas this other kid doesn't, so we're gonna hold the the poorer kids to a different standard, a lower standard, or whatever. Or we're gonna take marks on the richer kids, give them poor kids. What would people say about that? I think that they wouldn't like it, but I kind of see it going that way. I kind of feel like they could probably get away with that and not that far from now. I feel like they could propose that and people would be like, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Let's do that. that even... But why do you think that's never happened? That's what I call Marxism, right? Yeah. M-A-R- right. C-K-S-I-S-M. Marxism yeah, where you take... Like, it's just right? literally communism, yeah. But why, why do you think that's not happened? Mm-hmm. Why do I think they haven't done got to that extent yet? Yeah. Um, I don't know. I don't know why they have. Well, because it just hasn't progressed to that far. But I mean, I could see it happening. Even in communism, I don't think they did that. Okay. I don't know why. I mean, it's. I don't either. There's not some big garden know. path lead down. Okay. I don't know either. And if people I don't have, know why you I know, got that far, but it seems like plausible. But, but there's a reason why. I, I don't even want to speculate because I'm just talking out of my armpit at this point. But if people want to say in the comments why they think it's never gone that far, or why if that were proposed, most people would be up in arms. Yeah. Um, I, I would be interested in hearing it. But there's a reason why it's never gone that far. So. Um, right. And do you have siblings? I, I have a half brother. He's eight years younger. Uh, what now? Yeah. Did your mother stay married to the half She got remarried. Brother? So I have a half-brother. He's eight years younger. So when oh. I was eight, she got remarried. Okay. Yeah. And did they stay together? No. Ah. Yeah. Right. And the other thing, too, is that single motherhood, of course, leads to uh, needing old-age pensions, too. Because if yeah, you're a single mom, you can't really save any money, and therefore you need the government to step in with your CPP, your Canada Pension Plan, because you haven't been able to save your money. I mean, the, the dominoes are just... Yeah, just and I mean, it's, clack, right? that's the other thing. It's really frustrating when my husband and I, we both kind of come from not the greatest family situations, and we've worked really hard, made good choices, paid off our all debt, purchased at home. We make pretty good money, and then you're punished for that because... You make good choices, you plan, you work hard, but it doesn't, it's just like, okay, well, you're, now your income is this, so we can take it from you. It's just like when you work so hard and you don't have like, oh, it's just so frustrating that they think they can take from you when it's none of their business. They can just, I don't know. What, think they can take from you? They do Direction. take, yeah. They can take they. from you and they do because yeah, they have I the guess guns the alternative you is jail. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's, that's the frustrating part. Is you can work really hard and then it's just completely discounted. Sure, and and the the challenge, of course, is is not the the, the transfer of wealth to be is fine. I mean, I I do charity. I'm sure you do. Yeah, or, or yeah, well. I a hundred percent agree with giving money to people who are in need. And I have charities, and I like to work, like volunteer time for the those situations where I can actually see the value. But just taking it and then mysteriously that just goes to some place. It just and I just don't understand. Like every time it's taken by force, you don't ever. It's just 
you see the opposite. Like I've I listened to your show a lot and it is, you see the opposite occur when it's taken by force. They just, the opposite ends up happening. They take the money. Well, the other thing too to is that, the kids you know, and they're going to hurt the kids. Yeah. But of course the other thing too, is that because we know that there's a bell curve differences in intelligence between the races and between ethnicities, which I've, for those who are surprised by that, I've talked about that a number of times on the show with a wide variety of experts. But of course, without massive government transfers of wealth and without the government hiring, I mean, would would it not be fair to say that some of the races or ethnicities would end up with significantly lower incomes just based upon the IQ spread? And then everyone would jump all over Canada and say, ah, you see, it's got to be a racist country because the blacks or the Hispanics or whatever, they're only making X of the, and of course, right. the invisible Asians who make more than the whites and the Jews, right? I can't talk about those, right? Yeah. So it's another way of... Um, helping to close the gap that may exist because of bell curve distributions in intelligence being different between ethnicities. It's just another way of closing that gap so that, you know, those who don't understand those things won't look at Canada and say, ah, racist or whatever, right? Mm, yeah, I guess. Yeah. But it's just vote buying, vote buying and, and pandering and, and all that kind of stuff because you pay, other people take, but you both get one vote. Yeah. Yeah. Right? I mean, Romney said, and you know, he's pretty right. He said, look, Close to half the U.S. population is never going to vote for us because they're dependent on the government and we want to cut government. Yeah, and that's just automatically going to, you don't get their vote. So then, right. but don't you find that Canada's become, well, with Trudeau, it's getting, I feel like it's just worse. And maybe it is it is a time that you just decide to leave. Like my husband and I were thinking, like, maybe we should just leave. Like if it gets a lot worse, maybe Canada's not the right country to try to, like, build your family and really build what you want to do in this world. Like maybe it's not some like a place that's beneficial to the, like our, like, like for us, we'd probably maybe do better somewhere else. I don't know. It certainly is a possibility. And, um, Trudeau uh, as a whole is going to be the usual socialist disaster nightmare for Canada. Yeah. And for probably 10, 15 years at least. And then there's all the, like after that, then we have to live with all the consequences. So it's kind of like the worst at that point, we'll be getting like closer to retirement. We don't want to be here for that. Like maybe we should leave now. Well, we can. Well, look, I mean, you know, the the sort of where to go is a big challenge in the world. But the other thing too... (laughs) Megan, that I would say is that don't underestimate, and this may not be the case anymore because the liberals in the 90s were much more old school, Uh but the liberals in the 90s cut government enormously relative to where it was before. Mm -hmm. So if you have government to cut, if you have conservatives in power, then of course all the lefty liberals go hysterically screaming down the streets and try and goad as much as possible. And the media, the media will circle the wagons to protect the narrative of the evil, cold-blooded, materialistic, leftist conservatives uh, stealing bread from the mouths of the helpless children and so on, because they hope that that will vault their lefties' pets into power. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the other hand, if the left is in power and decides to cut government, then the media tends to circle around and protect whatever they're doing. They're being prudent. They're being wise. They're guarding the future of Canada and blah, 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 right? The old only Nixon can go to China. He was an anti-communist and went to China mm-hmm. to build relations. And uh, so having, you know, when the when push comes to shove, when the shite hits the fan, it's mm-hmm. not always the end of the world to have lefties in as long as they're not complete ideologues. Now, the degree to which, you know, uh, Mr. Fluffy Hair, <laughs> ex-snowboard instructor, I think he is a fluffy ideologue. And you have to remember, he was raised yeah, by I a really mentally think very so balanced woman. I'm sorry? I really think he is. I think he would be willing to go down for whatever. Philo- like, he really, truly believes that if you just 
And like, I don't think, I think he just it does not have any economic sense. Like, I think he just thinks that if you just all meditate and do yoga and say kind things, then that's going to run the country. Well, you know, he's a, um, he's a 1% of the 1%, right? I mean, he was yeah. raised as a complete political elite, as a cultural elite, as a social elite. He's as far from the man of the people as you can conceivably get yeah. without, you know, resurrecting Lord Fauntleroy in a little blue <laughs> sailor suit with electricity. Uh, and so the idea that he, you know, he, he can afford to live in ideology because he's never had to live in reality. Yeah. You know, he's never had bills to pay that he can't pay. He's always been popular. Not only is he rich, but he's, you know, good looking and athletic and all that kind of stuff. And so this, um, the idea that he's going to have some kind of reality uh, metric in him, uh, I think he's, you know, I, I, he, doesn't, he doesn't live anywhere close to reality. It's like what Elton John said about Freddie Mercury. He's like, Freddie Mercury doesn't know the price of milk, for heaven's sakes. He doesn't know how much things cost. I mean, he just has people pay, trail after him and pay for things. And yeah. so, um, but I think there's still a lot of common sense left uh, in Canada. Um, and there is some on the left. And if there do have to be cuts, then it's not always the end of the world. I mean, I know this makes a case, oh, put Hillary in, because but it's to me it's a little bit different in the States for reasons we don't have to go into right now. Mm -hmm. But um, there is a pragmatic streak in Canadians, right? They, they, there is a kind of harshness to, you know, remember, I mean, these are people who came over and tamed the Canadian bush. Right. Which... Um, I guess that's part of what these uh, <laughs> part of what these transfer payments are designed to do is taint the Canadian bush, but um, actually to subsidize it. But um, there is a sort of hard nosed pragmatism left over in in Canada. Um, so there's an indulgence of ideology, but there is still uh, a pretty solid sense of uh, pragmatism and. We'll see. Uh, the other thing too is that uh, Trudeau is one person when Barack Obama's in power. He may be quite another person, and I think he will have to be if one Donald J. Trump gets Yeah, I think so, too. I think it will really change. I think There may be, be a ripple reality effect. Who knows? Yeah. Right? yeah. Well, I think you'll just, mm, yeah, he could, I think that it could be beneficial for sure, because then you'd have, like, whatever happens there, we'll see the effects, because Trudeau is just going to react to it. He won't. Yeah. So, I mean, it's going to like watching a, a shark with an anchovy, but... So here's my sort of final speech about, about the way to approach it. You, you care about people, and I, I respect and recognize that. You have your children, so your time slice is a lot wider than a lot of other people's. But, Megan, this is the basic reality. Mm -hmm. Get the resources that you can get for your family mm -hmm. and sit back and try to enjoy the show. I know there are children involved. I know there's going to be a lot of suffering. I think that's very sad. But, you know, it's like a doctor. You're, you're a doctor? And you tell people, you got to stop smoking, you got to cut back on your fat intake, your sugar intake, you're going to get sick, you're going to get sick. And they're like, no, I'm good. I'm fine. Why are you <laughs> trying to take away my fun? You're mean. <laughs> and, you know, you have to detach yourself emotionally from the outcome. You have to. That's a basic survival mechanism. When society is going down, you cannot hang on. Right. You know, if you're in a sub and you're like standing on top and then the sub gets hit Start swimming. With something yeah. and starts to sink. What do you do with the sub? Let yeah. go. You have to give yourself that emotional distance. Like you're watching a movie. Like it's just all happening out there. Because you are watching a movie. You can't go in and change it. I can't go in and change it. 
Right. So you're watching a movie and the movie has good guys and it has bad guys. And hopefully the good guys prosper and the bad guys don't. <laughs> but you have to detach yourself from that because, you know, we're, we're case selected. We, we care. We have perhaps pathological altruism. We don't want people to suffer. But if they cause the suffering themselves, and there are people to get angry at, and I, again, I, who am I blaming? I, I think that the media, to some degree, uh, is the most culpable, but that's, you know, or maybe the, uh, no, I don't just mean the media like newsprint or, or, or mm -hmm. that, but uh, the movies and television shows are all pushing the same crap. Um, but a culture that won't learn from reason has to learn from bitter experience. And we have to detach ourselves from that outcome because it'll torture us, we'll go crazy, and we can't change it. You know, we can put arguments out there. I mean, I'm certainly working my best. But we can't change in terms of whether people will listen to us or won't listen to us, whether they will act or they won't act. And right now, there's a whole lot of not acting going mm -hmm. on, at least in, in all places in the West except America, I think. So this is the script. This is the story. This is the movie. Is it going to have a sad ending? It is. It's going to have a very sad ending, I think, unless people really start listening to reason, in which case it's going to be less sad, but I think it's going to have a sad ending. I think people are going to have to learn from bitter experience. They have to have their never again moment when it comes to government spending and subsidies and destruction of the family and single motherhood and debt and junk, all that sort of crap, right? Mm -hmm. And it, it kind of has to run its course. It's like a fever. It, it, it kind of, I think at this point, it kind of has to run its course. And... Mm -hmm. You know, we, we hopefully have good information out there so that when it runs its course and there's a big transition point, people will look to those who predicted it and who were right and hopefully will ask advice on what to do better. So you have to find a way to detach yourself. Just look at this like, wow, this is a really sad story. Wow, this is a really tragic movie. Wow, this is really bad what they're doing. And I can't find any other way to look at it and not go crazy. I mean, because it, it, it is, I have as much control over Canadian political decisions as I do over a movie that's being projected on a screen. I right. guess I can go and make some bunny ears, <laughs> but, but I can't do, really much, do yeah. much else. So I just find a way you sit back and say, well, a big giant life lesson is coming, people. And, you know, I'll put words out there, but it's not up to me as to whether it stopped or not. It's up to everyone else. And if they won't stop it, too. Yeah, and it's, it's going to happen and it's going to be unpleasant and I'm sorry for everything I'm sorry for everyone who didn't listen just as if you don't quit smoking your, your doctor is sorry if you get sick but um, he cannot he cannot bind himself to your sinking sub um, th then there's nobody left to rebuild no that makes sense yeah you just kind of can't get wrapped up in it just sit back and do what's best for your family but then I your responsibilities to your husband and your kids yeah in my, in my opinion. And that's your prime. So get resources so that you have as much capacity to manage a transition in as sort of a, as graceful a manner as right. possible. Yeah, you know, whatever that means, right? I mean, yeah. there's a bunch of different things you can do. And um, th that's your responsibility, not to society, not to the kids of the people who are doing all this kind of stuff, you know, and, and I'm sorry for the kids, but, you know, it's not my fault. In fact, if people listen to me, they'd be a whole lot better off. It's all the fault of the people who don't listen. It's all the fault of the people who don't listen and the people who actively interfere with the listening process, right? So you try and talk about cutting this crap and the media is like, you hate 
kids, you hate minorities, or oh, they hate your white privilege, and, and yeah. you know, they just are out there pouring as much poison into the ear of humanity as possible. Well, I think they're responsible. So, you know, if the shit hits the fan, Megan, it's on them. It's not on you. Yeah, in the it's, end. it's on them. It's on them. It's not on you. It's not on me. It's not on the people who are telling the truth and trying to prevent these kinds of disasters. It's on all the other people who, because of their own sickness and, and misery and, and hostility and manipulation and lust for power, it's all those people's fault because they won't let a civilized discussion occur about these things. You know, you bring up these topics, oh, you hate the poor, okay? So <laughs> when the poor end up in a really bad place, it's on you, my friend. It's not on me. Yeah, I, if you try, yeah, I, I, that makes sense. Yeah, just sit, don't get too, you just kind of have to, I think I need to read that book, um, Gorilla Mindset. I was listening to Mike Cernovich's show, and I was like, yeah, yeah, maybe that's what I need to do. I need to just be like, okay, like, whatever happens, it's okay. Like, I'm not going to get, yeah, I'm just going to act like I'm dead. <laughs> yes, and, um, and and so, you know, the arguments that are put forward, ah, liberal government says a new program will push nearly 300,000 Canadian children out of poverty. It's like, well, Canadians pay ridiculously high taxes. Why are those children in poverty in the first place if the government's so efficient and helpful and, you know, that's yeah, crazy. Makes no sense. Oh, who, who doesn't want poverty to be lowered? Don't you want poverty to be lowered for children? It's like, I do. In the same way I want people to be happy, that doesn't mean I want to inject cocaine into their eyeballs. Anyway, listen, I got to move right. on to the next yep. caller, but I, I really do appreciate the call and I, I hope this helps. Just remember, you can get angry at the people who are interfering with the rational conversation. All the miseries that result are on them, not on you. And uh, hopefully that will give you some relief. No, I appreciate it. Thanks so much, Stefan. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right. Up next is Mutia. He wrote in and said, why does the media fail to point out Republican or independent African-Americans? Instead, there is a consistent barrage by the media stating that most, if not all, African Americans are all Democratic liberals. Since I consider myself an American Republican of Nigerian African descent, this is one of the most annoying things that I have seen the media pushing. That's from Udia. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. And if you don't mind me asking, you said of Nigerian African descent, uh, second generation, third generation, how far are we digging back through the tunnel of time here? Uh it would be first generation. So my parents uh, came from Nigeria and I was born in, in Texas. Ah, okay. And um, how did you end up uh, defying the <laughs> the odds and the stereotypes and ending up on the Republican side of things? Well, you know, I, I would say a big part of it is um, just my upbringing. Um, we weren't for example, when we were growing up, we weren't really raised with what I guess a lot of African Americans are raised with here in the country to, you know, I believe a certain way about, you know, Caucasians or, or white people um, to, you know, I guess, you know, don't be careful around the cops, things like that. I mean, th these are just things that, that weren't taught in my in my house growing up. 
to my brother or my sister or I. Um, we were just essentially. So you stuck. you didn't get the the helpful injection of bottomless racial resentment that seems to have helped the African American community so much. I'm I'm sorry you were so underprivileged with that narrative, uh, Mudia. That's that's very tragic. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that that please wasn't... please thank your parents for me. You know, <laughs> not just as a philosopher, but as a white person. Please thank your parents for me for giving you. Uh, that gift of not having massive chips on your shoulder about everything that breathes uh, and doesn't tan well. Yeah, it's very it's very frustrating, actually. Um, so I grew up in the suburbs of of Houston, Texas, um, and I grew up in a pretty pretty diverse place. We had Filipinos, Vietnamese, um, white, black, uh, uh, gosh, uh, Sikhs. Uh, Muslims, everything. So for me, it was just that was the world I was brought into. Um, I didn't really uh, understand racism. In fact, I, I had gone through so you know a lot of racist things growing up, but I didn't even understand it. I mean, I, in all honesty, I didn't understand it until I was like in my getting close to my twenties. I looked back, I said, "Oh, I didn't. Okay, now I see what was going on." You know <laughs> what? Uh, sorry, can you? I just tell me what what do you mean by went through a lot of racist stuff. If you don't mind. Um, so there was one time there was a um, they were doing it was it was an event where they were doing um, like a cook a cookout uh, on our street our neighborhood street and I went outside you know just it's like oh I wonder what's going on here and I went and you know I started grabbing some of the food and they're just kind of like oh you're not welcome here I'm like uh, why <laughs> I, I I this is literally my driveway that I'm coming out of to grab you know, some food from this cookout. And I don't know, I, I had perceived it was, uh, I guess looking back, I, I thought, okay, maybe that was, maybe that was racist a little bit. I'm not, I'm not too sure. I guess I didn't dig into it really. Well, did they say why they didn't want you around? Maybe they just didn't want people taking their food. Maybe, yeah. Maybe if you've been polka dotted, they'd have said, Hey, and you, did you figure out why did you, did they ever say? No, I never figured out why. I, I I didn't figure out why. Um, and I, I gotta tell learn, you, I mean, I sorry, sorry to interrupt. Later. Uh-huh. Sorry, sorry to interrupt, but I just I just wanted to mention. I find it really frustrating when racists, if they were racist, I really find it frustrating when racists don't follow through. You know, let's say somebody just didn't like you because of the color of your skin or whatever, and they said you're not welcome around here, and you'd say why? I'd say because you're black. You know, at least then there's not this, huh, I wonder if I misinterpreted something or I wonder if I jumped the gun or whatever. So when people are racist, it's usually very helpful if they just follow through. You know, like the Black Lives Matter, uh, they, there was um, a, um, a march uh, on the DNC, right, the Democratic get-together. And they said, white people go to the back. Why? Because you're white. Okay, that's a racist who's following through. No ambiguity, no, well, maybe I got it wrong, maybe I just, you know, maybe I'm being paranoid and so on. Nope, straight on, color of skin, that's it. Um, but if they, so, you know, if it was because of the color of your skin, obviously, I'm sorry, that's that's a terrible and nasty thing to, to happen. But it's kind of annoying to me that they weren't just, like, if you're going to be racist, you know, commit to it. It's like doing a comedy bit. Like, it doesn't matter how badly it's going, you just got to commit to it, no matter what. <laughs> You, you know, now, now actually looking back at it, I could be totally wrong because the a, a big part of why I thought it was racist was because I was told, oh yeah. So the the parents of the of the um, what do you mean say the parents? The people that I was speaking with, I knew their 
their son and we would, you know, play dodgeball and tetherball and play different games and things like that. And there was a rumor going around. It was actually a rumor. Now I remember it was a rumor going around that they were racist, that they, they, you know, it was, it was a rumor. It was just a rumor on the, on the neighborhood block. So now this is what I'm saying. It shouldn't be a rumor. It shouldn't be a rumor. It should be fully confirmed that they're racist you know put it on the lawn sign you know bigotry here you know whatever it's going to be like uh, put their little dogs in in kkk hats whatever it's going to be just make it clear because that way people don't end up feeling paranoid it's like yep racist right there right up front exactly and now you know this is good having this conversation with you now I'm, i'm realizing that i was falling into the the i guess the status quo thought process of assuming people are racist because of how I felt or assuming someone was being racist because of what I thought or emotions without actually validating it. And you know what? I take all that back now. They, they may have not been racist at all. It just could have been that we weren't invited to the party. Um, or at least I wasn't. Not we, but I wasn't. My parents could have gotten an invite and just didn't show up. And, you know, I walked over there and was just grabbing some food. And it's like, hey, uh, you know. Calm down. You know, I, so. if you start grabbing food from my lawn um, and I'm having a private barbecue, I might say something too. But but only because I thought you were gay. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I'm just – it's possible, right? But that's why, you know, this is – I invite this racist, you know, just – just go for it. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll like you a lot more if you're totally honest about it rather than this all this around the edges stuff because that's just that's really annoying because it's just enough to make people feel uneasy and unsettled but not enough to give them the relief of knowing that they're really being victims of racism. So that's just my particular take on it uh, and uh, hopefully people will listen to that and just commit to whatever vices you happen to be practicing. It makes life so much easier for everyone else. I agree. All right. Uh, was there anything else? So we've got one barbecue where you basically went in and stole things. No, I'm kidding. Um, do you have any – what are the other things that happened that were um, along those lines for you? I, I had another situation where – so one – it was a friend. There was this big game back when I was growing up called um, – you know, we were young. We always used to play lots of video games. I, I don't really play very many games now. I don't have time to now. I'm always working. But um, – Back when I was younger, everyone played this game called Final Fantasy VII that came out, and everybody was playing it, and it was just the craziest game in the world. And I didn't have the game system. Um, I just I didn't have the game. I think my brother would. What? Uh, what? Sorry. First of all, it just annoys me when somebody says "final," stop making sequels. Like, what are you, the Who touring or share? Final tour until next year. <laughs> Final <laughs> Fantasy. Wait. Okay. No, there's another. One. But what game system was it on? I don't remember. That, was that on the PC? It was no, on the so. it was on the PlayStation. So right, okay. We had Nintendo, and and uh, one of my friends had the PlayStation. So I went to his house, and you know we played the Final Fantasy VII game, and I was playing it, and we we're just having a good time. And then he had a babysitter, um, and it was, it was I was there while his babysitter was there, and I I went back to the house one time, and they're like, "You're not welcome here anymore." And I said, "Well, why?" And they said, "Well, because." You know, you stole something. You stole the batteries or something like that. And I'm like, I didn't steal any batteries. I don't know what you're talking about, about me stealing batteries or anything like that. And I had, I guess, looking back at a certain time in my life, assumed, well, I guess it was because, because I'm black. They just didn't want me to go over there. Um, but that's assuming that there aren't other good reasons to dislike you. Yeah, it could have been because I was like, no, because <laughs> people don't like me and I could ascribe it to a wide variety of things. But it may just be that 
I'm unlikable to some people in, in very significant ways. And I, I fully accept that. But do you have any idea where the stole batteries came from? Yeah, we were looking for batteries. I can't remember the reason why. This is such a long time ago. We were looking for batteries for either like a toy gun or, or some type of toy thing, and we couldn't find the batteries. And I remember we both, like, I, he helped me climb, climb on the cabinet so I could look for the batteries in there. And we didn't find them. We didn't see them. And um, after that, we're just like, okay, well, let's just go back and finish playing the game. We go back and finish playing the game. And then I leave and I come back, you know, a couple days later, knock on his door. And it's like, oh, well, you stole the batteries. I'm like, uh, now it could be that your friend got in big trouble for something missing and just blamed you because you were the last kid over. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, I'll just let me share a tiny story uh, from, from my history. So, uh, way back in the day, I had. An Atari 800. Yes, you can still find um, – you, you can for, for some really chunky ASCII-style graphics. Actually, the graphics weren't bad, but <laughs> I had an Atari uh, 800, and um, there was some kid who was in my school, happened to be a, a black kid, and he came over. And, you know, we were supposed to play this this game, and it was a basketball game, and I think I only had one joystick. And so he played the game. He played the game, and he, like, didn't talk to me the whole time. <laughs> and then when he was done playing the game, he kind of got up and said, okay, I'm going. And he left my house. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> and so it's like, okay, so I'm staring at your head playing a video game and then you just get up and go. And so, you know, you always think, okay, well, maybe he just was in a bad mood or was having a bad day or whatever. And so, you know, next time we were playing football or soccer together and he's like, can I come over and play a video game? And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> came over. Grabbed the joystick, played the video game, stayed for about an hour, got up, said, I'm going now. Oh, my gosh. And went home. And um, next time we were together and he's like, can I come over? I'm like, nope. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I don't know. Maybe he went back and said, man, that's racism. And it's like, nope, (laughs) it's not racism. It's just because it's no fun for me, right? And it wasn't like I was all adept at being able to explain my needs and negotiate. Like I was, you know, I was like 11 or whatever, right? <laughs> but, you know, I was like, no, I'm sorry. I don't want you to come over because I can't do what I'm doing because you're overplaying a video. I can't go do something else. I can't use my computer because you're using it. I give you some pop, which, you know, I was the kind of kid who had like so little pop that I'd have to fill up the cups of water with like 90% ice. You know, like some cheap yeah. carnival ride or something, you know, like here is your ice with pop flavor. Oh. And um, so, yeah, I mean, like what what was in it for me? It was nothing in it for me having this kid come over and play video games and uh, not chat with me and basically just use me, you know, for, now I know how women feel. Just use me for my joystick. And um, so, you know, maybe he went back and this is, I mean, it's not particularly relevant to what you're saying, but my point is it had nothing to do with his ethnicity. It was just, you know, he was kind of a jerk and uh, kind of not uh, interested in socializing. He just wanted to use my video game console or video game computer. And uh, that really wasn't that much fun for me. But I don't know, maybe he's going to call in some podcast at some point and say, yeah, that racist guy just, you know, like, wouldn't let me come over and <laughs> whatever, right? Wow. You know, this is this is really eye opening. You know, I I had never really um, taken the time to, and I I mean I reflected on many things, but I guess I'd never really taken the time to sit down and really reflect on this and to understand. Okay, Moody, it's not because of my skin color. It's just because maybe there was some other situation that caused that. But, um, you know, 
I, I, I don't want to put the blame on anything, but, you know, if there is anything I would scapegoat it on, I'd say the, the race card is played so much in the media. I mean, it's just anything mm-hmm. happens between a, a African-American and a Caucasian-American, and it's immediately the race card is immediately played, and it's because of racism. And there's it's not really dug into at all. It's not really looked into. It's just, you know, these are just racist cops. And that narrative is played over and over and over again. And I don't know. It just for me, it's just extremely frustrating. I think it makes things harder than 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 things should be. Like for for example, I was um so I'm I, I'm originally from Texas, and I moved to New York for a, a job uh, opportunity about six months ago. And um, there's a big difference here that I that I've noticed. You know, people are definitely more vocal. They they're more open to discussing even even racism or, or race and race baiting all of that. So I was um, hanging out with a couple of friends, and and I do want to state that all of all the people I was hanging out with, they were uh, either of uh, African or African American descent. And I have a wide group of friends. I have friends from every nationality but this time it just happened to be african-american friends and it was just right after the the shooting that took place and or the two shootings that took place and i believe it was in minnesota and dayton in not dayton rouge um louisiana and in minnesota with the cops and the sort of alton sterling and philando castile ones yes alton sterling yeah, yeah. and philando castile and immediately um you know they were we were having a conversation about it and i was really keeping my mouth shut because i have my views on it um <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> and I didn't Wait, wanna... Okay, I'm sorry to interrupt you, man. It's a great story. You had to keep your mouth shut around black people because you had different opinions? Yeah, <laughs> I did. Okay. See, that's the kind of individualism we're looking for in the black community. <laughs> I didn't, right. didn't want to offend anyone. And, you know, I... Like, I just met these people, and I don't want to offend anybody. <laughs> I'm just going to keep my mouth shut. And then the golden question comes, right? The golden question comes. And um, one, of the, one of the people there, she was a female, and she asked me, as an African-American man, you know, how, how are things for you? How hard is this for you? What does this make you feel like walking around on the streets? You know, how... How, how are things harder for you in America? And I'm just like completely just shocked. I'm like, I can't believe you just asked me that question. You know, I mean, I understand where it's coming from, but she doesn't understand my upbringing. And well, <clears throat> sorry to interrupt, but isn't it a little bigoted to assume that you're an African-American? Yeah. Yeah. You I, know, I mean, you're not part of the African-American legacy, you know, the 400 years and all that kind of stuff. I mean, you come from Nigeria. Your parents come from Nigeria. So assuming that you're a part of this whole narrative is, well, you know, you're black, therefore you must be an African-American in the way that they sort of mean that. I mean, yeah, that's racist, right? Again, I'm trying not to use the R word unless, you know, somebody's actually stringing someone up or whatever, but it's definitely not overly curious, uh, to put it mildly, right? It's like, you know, like if somebody had talked to me about white privilege when I was 11, you know, the most popular kid in my entire school was this amazingly cool um, black guy. Uh, and, and, you know, I was not, didn't feel all kinds of privileged. Um, it wouldn't have made much sense to me, but anyway, it just seems odd that they would immediately assume that you'd be you know, absolutely part of that African-American narrative, uh, despite the fact that your cultural background would be distinct from that African-American experience, uh, you know, post-slavery and all. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, you 
just nailed it on the head. That is my thought process because my parents never taught me anything about slavery. It wasn't even taught to us. In fact, my parents had a different, my parents said, you know, the British were in Nigeria. They helped develop Nigeria and they were very good to us. And my parents have British names and they only have good things to say about the British. Now, I know that wasn't the full story, the full narrative, but they experienced, the experience they had growing up was good. I mean, (laughs) so I'm sitting here thinking, okay, well, this is good. Everyone's everyone's good with each other. Everyone should be good with each other. And then the school I went to growing up, my teacher was amazing. And she was she was white. She was the greatest teacher. And she was the most amazing teacher ever. Made me feel so special um, as a child growing up. And I, 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 again, I went to an amazing school. Um, that was another good thing, too. Even with police officers. I never had anything bad with police officers even when i i acted a fool there was one time where I, you know i not one there's multiple times but uh <laughs> i've had i've had multiple encounters where i was with the wrong crowd of people or i had um you know i'd gotten a fight before and different fights and it was always hey we understand that things just got a little too hot and just next time don't do that you know and, and we understand where you're coming from um there was one time, and I'll be very discreet, one of my best friends, um, he had stolen a bike, and I was with him. I was telling him not to do it, though, but I was with him. He stole the bike, and when the cop came to take him, uh, I guess, you know, put him in the back of the cop car, it wasn't like, oh, my gosh, there's this black kid with him. Um, he did it. <laughs> I'm going to need backup. <laughs> The black was, in the neighborhood. Bring in the helicopters. I need some flash flashbangs. <laughs> it was, I, I, in all honesty, I had nothing to do with it. Um, I told him not to do it. I didn't, I didn't fully follow him to where he went and, and took the bike, and then ended up getting caught, and then ended up getting wrestled down to the ground by this sumo wrestler guy, who called the cops on him. But at the end of the day, it was hey, we understand that this is your friend, but we also understand that you were trying to tell him not to do it. Um, But it's just so funny how none of these stories are ever talked about in the media. Nothing like this is ever discussed. And it's... uh, The thing thing is, too, is that, you know, this sort of targeted policing um, uh, that happened to me as well. Uh, I was with... um, a friend of mine, and we were probably 13 or 14, and we both came from single mom households, which meant that we were basically feral wild boys, <laughs> lost boys uh, raising ourselves. Uh, <laughs> and um, we got a, we had a Frisbee, and we were out after dark. Um, I can't remember if it was the summer or not. It was pretty warm out, though. And me, I'm a, I am love Frisbees. And uh, skipping, oh, man, that's like my big thing, right? Like if you can do a nice skip curve and get it to go back up to the person uh, and get it to their hand, that's great stuff. Best place to do that is a parking lot late at night, especially in a mall, like at 10 o'clock or 1030 at night because the cars are all gone and you've got lots of room to do it all. Mm-hmm. So there we were playing Frisbee at 10, 1030 at night. Uh, and um, cop car comes by and basically asks us what we're doing there. <laughs> you know, what are you guys doing in a mall parking lot way after closing? And I said, um, I love me some Frisbee, uh, officer, and, you know, it's the best place to do it and uh, all that. And we had a conversation and uh, away they went. You know, I, I, I wasn't, oh, I'm targeted and profiled and oh, resentment of the cops. It's like, you know, it costs five minutes of my life, you know, and if it helps make them all safer, that's fine with me. Wow. Yeah. And, and you know, so this this is, this goes back to the 
the conversation that I essentially had with them that night, I told them, I said, hey, you know, this was my upbringing. This is how I was raised. I mean, I wasn't wasn't raised, I guess you can say, as a traditional. And and I don't I'm not trying to stereotype because I really don't know enough. I, I need to spend more time with the the African-American community of. of no, of listen, Moody, seriously, you just have to ask me. I just, <laughs> just, just ask me. Listen, if you need to know anything about the African-American experience, I am the gateway to the to the Ebonic experience. Just ask me and I'll tell you anything and everything. I'm just kidding. Go on. <laughs> so I had, um, I, 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 I spoke with them about it and I told them and they were actually, they were shocked. She said, oh, wow, I've never heard of this perspective before. This is really interesting. And that's about as far as it went. I, I guess they wanted a different answer. Uh, so Wait, she said this is really interesting as in, well, you're a fine and unusual specimen. So are you, um, so she said this is really interesting and then that was the end of the conversation? Yeah, we, we jumped on the Pokemon Go after that it, immediately. No, no, but that's interesting. I mean, <laughs> if someone says this is really interesting, isn't that usually the gateway to continuing the conversation? Like, you know, you and I go to see a, a movie, Moodya, and I'm like, within 15 minutes, I'm like, wow, this is a fantastic film. Let's go. Let's leave. Let's go get our money back. I love this film. It's like, what? What are you talking about? If something's interesting, shouldn't you want to know more? Anyway. I, I agree. I, I do agree. Um, so from there, um, you know, we started talking about other things. But, you know, it just, it just brings me back to the whole I, – I, I guess I got really upset about this with the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, and I had watched a video about Black Trump supporters destroys – MSNBC host, and I watched it's about a minute minute long video on YouTube, and it essentially that's usually about how long it takes. Anyway, go on. <laughs> it it essentially talks. It's, there's a reporter MSNBC, um, and it's a African American woman, and she's talking about talking about um, how I guess they were looking into the Trump supporters and the new the new um, people that he was bringing into the quote unquote Republican Party as the the way that the way they were saying it, bringing it to the Republican Party. And they said, well let's take a look. I think we have one of our reporters down there. Let's take a look and and, and look at you know what's going on here in this Trump rally. And it's an African American man with his Caucasian friend. And they're they're there and they're just talking, having you know, having a good time. And he says, hey, all this stuff about David Duke and and these things about they're trying to race bait and and you know make Trump look like he's racist, you know, this is ridiculous. He says, I'm sitting here with my with my white friend, my white American friend, and we're having a great time. You know, this is this is not about racism. And they immediately cut cut the clip and they start no. saying things like Oh, well, and the reporter says, well, let me just make this clear. Obviously, there's not a, there, that's, he does not represent uh, uh, African-Americans. Um, you know, he doesn't, there's, there's not a lot of black Trump supporters, obviously. And, and <laughs> but I'm sorry. And, and uh, you know, people will, will link to this video. I saw it too. And I must say, I watched it more than once because the woman's face when it comes back is like narrative breaking, narrative breaking, call backup propaganda. We've lost the main narrative. It's breaking up, Captain. Ah! I mean, her face was just like, oh, shit. <laughs> you know, I've just, yeah. I just lactated uh, into my coffee. Actually, that might be tasty. I don't know. <laughs> but, yeah, that is, that is um, you know, when the narrative breaks. And I, that black guy was great. He's like, yeah, I'm sitting here, you know, chilling with my white friend. And they look, like, friendly. And it's just like, ah. ah, ah. Yeah. It, was, it was absolutely ridiculous. And, you know, these are the things that we don't hear about. 
we don't we don't hear about this, um, and it's it's really sad. So it kind of brings me back to why I identify as Republican. I would say a mixture of between like I guess Republican and Independent because I don't agree with I would say everything Republican. I mean, there's certain things that, um, gosh, that I, I, I don't fully agree with. But so for me, it just has to do with my dad's. My dad came from a village, right, in Africa. He, his family's from a village, and I've been there. I've been to Nigeria three times, so I've been to the village. I've seen where he came from. He moved to the city when he was young, lived with his brother. His brother was a businessman. He went through school. He became a math teacher where he met my mom. He was tutoring my mom, so it wasn't like my mom was a student or anything like that. He was tutoring her, so they were you know around the same age. He then got his visa, came to the United States, and then got his PhD. Started his own business and, and is, is created a very successful business. So I don't believe in handouts because I wasn't raised to believe in handouts. I wasn't. I was raised to believe in hard work, perseverance, education, focus, um, uh, self control. But, but Moody, uh, you know, your IQ is through the roof, right? I mean, your 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 dad is a genius. Yeah, your mom, I assume, is smart, if not equally intelligent to to your dad, because you know geniuses don't usually marry dull women. Yeah. So you also won the lottery, as far as just your, you know, it's probably why they didn't want to spend their lives in Nigeria, right? I mean, Nigeria doesn't strike me as the intelligence capital of the planet. No offense intended, but you know, they wanted to get out. They wanted to come to a place like America where their your, your, your parents' significant intelligence could have full scope to achieve something. Exactly, yeah. Exactly. And you have that scope too. Yeah. And, and you know, I mean, and the, 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 one of the big problems, of course, is that, you know, I mean, I completely understand why your parents did what they did. And I'm not saying that I would do anything differently. But it does mean that that's a pair of geniuses who ain't in Nigeria anymore. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm sure they've thought of that, too. And it's like, you know, I mean, I, I, I you know, because who, who is going to make Nigeria better if all the smart people are, oh, God, we got to get out of this place, right? Yeah, that's true. You got to have, hopefully, someone go back and, and try to fix things up or help things out there. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, just, it's a very corrupt country. And I mean, every Nigerian will tell you that. It is. It's corrupt. I, know, I just don't want to see that happen to America. Right, right. So, um, so as, as to why um, black African-Americans, um, it's not about race and it's not about gender with the media. It's not about race and it's not about gender. They'll keep telling you it's about race and it's about gender, but it's not. Because if you are on the left, the media will circle the wagons. Now, if you're a woman on the left and if you're a black on the left, or you're a white on the left, doesn't really matter. An Asian on the left. If you're on the left, the media will go to the wall to protect you, to, to keep negative information about you from the public, to bury as much as they can, to avoid any topics that cast aspersions upon you if you're on the left. What matters is the left, the socialist stuff. It doesn't matter the race, the gender, the whatever, right? Mm -hmm. On the other hand, if you're on the right then they'll attack you no matter what. Like if you're black, they'll attack you. If you're gay, they'll attack you, as, as Milo has sort of experienced uh, over, uh, over the years. If you're black, they will attack you, or at the very least, they'll fail to defend you. 
I mean, you could look at the, the different experiences of multiple accusations of sexual assault and rape. One of them is Bill Clinton. The other is Bill Cosby. Bill Cosby is more on the right. Bill Clinton is more on the left. So Bill, Bill Clinton gets a free pass. Bill Cosby, uh, well, the uh, whoever accuses him must be true. And we're going to gather all these women. We're going to put them together on a magazine cover and we're going to boom, boom, boom. Have they ever got all of Clinton's accusers? No. on the cover of a magazine and said we must believe them because it's true and reported endlessly on every accusation. No. Because no. Bill Clinton, he's white, but he's on the left. So he's, he's of the protected class. Bill Cosby is black, but he's on the right. Just, I don't know if he's a conservative or not, like officially, but uh, he does talk about, you know, the, the black community fixing its own problems. And of course, if the black community does fix its own problems, which of course we all want to have happen, then the Democrats won't have much to sell them anymore. So there is no particular incentive uh, for the media to help the black community solve their own problems. So anyone who comes along with um, suggestions that will help the black community fix their own problems as um, uh, you can uh, – the pound cake speech, you can look this up and, and there's other speeches that uh, Bill Cosby made. And Bill Cosby's very success, of course, and Bill Cosby had a very, very high IQ as well. We've got a whole presentation about him. Or if you look um, at women – uh, just if you really want to be horrified by, by this language, look up what Bill Maher, M-A-H-E-R, was saying about Sarah Palin. He used the see you next Tuesday word. I mean, just hammered on her. Look at how the media treated Michelle Bachman. Michelle Bachman versus the way that they treat Hillary Clinton. Michelle Bachman, it's a totally different planet. So they'll try and tell you it's about gender and it's about race and it's about sexual orientation. It has nothing to do with any of those things fundamentally. Those are just the covers. Those are the distractions. Those are like the, the pickpocket, the two-person pickpocket team, like the one bumps into, the other one reaches in and takes your wallet. Well, it's all about promoting the left and attacking the right. And this is why the right generally wins, because they're stronger. They're swimming upstream. And so what it does is it punishes people for being on the right and rewards people for being on the left. It has nothing to do with moral considerations whatsoever. And what it does is it tries to lure people into the protection of being on the left. Because if you're on the left, you can do just about anything and get away with it. Like Anthony Weiner, who, you know, tweeted his junk to like a bunch of women or whatever. They tried to rehabilitate him. That's Uma Abedin's husband, yeah. um, husband, I think quotes. But um, they tried to rehabilitate him. I was reading this article about, you know, he's fighting his way back from his addiction and he's going to do good and he really cares and he's going to help the poor. And then he said, I think he did something else ridiculously inappropriate. <laughs> and then they gave up on him. But they'll even try to re rehabilitate. So what they, what the media is saying is, come to the, they're like Darth Vader with the dark side. Come to the left. You will be protected. We will always protect you. Whoever accuses you shall be attacked in return. We shall troll everyone who speaks negative of you. You can strangle hobos and we shall cover up the bodies with our tears of sympathy, pretend sympathy for the poor. Yeah. And so people are lured like a gravity well into the leftist protectionist magic circle. And then they say, and should you go to the right, should you join Luke and the rebellion, we shall train all of our lasers upon you and you shall never have a moment's peace. And even if you don't do anything, we'll attack you. But on the left, if you do anything and everything, we'll defend you. And so there's this weird distortionary gravity well that pulls people Roar! you know like the, the 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 right is like Ceres the little asteroid and the left is like Jupiter hundreds of times bigger than the earth pulling people in come to our protective umbrella wouldn't you want to go in for the big deadly fight knowing that you can't ever be hit isn't that great you know whereas if 
if you're a right uh, ring person and you're going into the fight, I mean, not only will they tie their hands behind your back, but they'll drop a piece of masonry on your head and call it a fair fight. So, yeah. um, it, you know, when they start, it's not race baiting. It's not race baiting because the degree to which the left race baits uh, blacks on the right, oh, man, they're brutal. It's got nothing to do with race, nothing to do with gender, nothing to do with sexual orientation, nothing to do with anything, nothing to do with Islamophobia. It's all about the left and their promotion of power. Does that help at all? Yeah, that definitely does clear a lot of things up for me. <laughs> Good, because I did all that in one breath. I'm quite proud. I'm kidding. Because <laughs> I'm a beluga. Actually, fairly close. Wow. Yeah, thank you. That's uh, I feel a lot lighter now. I had the... To- I had to go on that little rant for a bit, but it, 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 um, it, Wait, it, are you saying I've turned you white? <laughs> I feel a lot lighter now. Uh, I just thought that was kind of funny. <laughs> did I, did I whiten you up there, friend? Uh, <laughs> no, I just, I, I was just, I had a lot of frustrations and, and it's, it's, I had a lot of frustrations with just what was going on and feel like I, I felt like I really couldn't talk to a lot of people about it. I felt like I was kind of just in, just in a bubble. And I was just holding all these frustrations in and, and talking to you about it's really helped me to, one, reflect on on wrong beliefs that I had from childhood. And two, help me to understand that, you know, it isn't all, it's not all about racism. It's not all about race baiting. The media was getting to me just a little bit. I've been watching too oh, much. Oh, yeah, they're trying to. <laughs> they're trying to. And, you know, one of the, the real white privilege is recognizing that people can dislike you for very legitimate reasons that have nothing to do with the color of your skin. Whereas, of course, if someone like you or, or particularly African-Americans, if they have a negative experience, particularly if it's with a white person, they have the out called he's racist. As opposed to, maybe I just went to his house and played video games, didn't talk to him, and marched out. <laughs> maybe it's not my skin color. Maybe it's my behavior. And there's a guy, I don't know. I mean, he's interesting to listen to. He's very interesting to listen to. He's given me a lot of stimulation uh, in not just this area, but I'm really turning over this whole question of forgiveness and all of that. But that's a topic for another time. Mm-hmm. His name is Jesse Lee Peterson. I've done an interview with him, but it's not released. Okay. And he says that there's no, I'm paraphrasing here, but it's something like this. It's not race that matters. It's behavior that matters. It's behavior that matters. I, I completely agree. I 100% completely agree. And, and, and just to piggyback on that, so I've heard things such as, and these are from people that I grew up with. Um, I've heard things such as, you know, white privilege. Oh, you know, just, oh, they're just white privilege. And these are not, these are not black people, by the way, that I heard this from. Uh, no, <laughs> but I'm so. sorry. I, I just like to apologize for all the white people who use that term. It's just, it's, anyway, go ahead. Oh, it wasn't, it wasn't from a white person either. It was from, um, you know, we're just being very transparent here, right? It was from a, someone who's Pakistani. And he's like, oh, okay. privileged. And, and I was just like, what do you mean? I can't believe this even coming out of your mouth. Why would you even think that way that you feel that because someone, I don't know, I, I, and and what I'm saying may sound crazy, right? But I, when I when my first job, I worked with a fantastic company. I did extremely well. I was named the rookie of the year. I was the top producer in the region for the company. Um, I had gotten promoted to a very good very good position. I never had any type of qualms with my skin color or my name. I have a very unusual name, right? Uh, so I never had those problems. So I'm sitting here thinking. 
why did why are you even believing that? It's a, called human potential. It's called if you set your mind to something and you believe you can do it, you will accomplish it. Accomplish it and and move forward. You know, it's like that's a, something that I, I really want people to understand. Period. Human potential and the mind and how powerful it is. Right. Booker T. Washington. Because, I mean, there's a whole story behind this, which I don't know, but the, the, the fork in the road with the black community, as it has been with the Irish community and other communities, is do you go for the state or do you go for the free market? Right. So it, the Irish went for the state. I became cops and, and politicians. They all went for the state and they stagnated for a long time in the 19th, early 20th century. Japanese people and Chinese people did not go for the state. They went for the free market. They went for education. They went for upgrading with skills. And the same thing outside of sort of politics and so on uh, is the case with the, the Jews, particularly in the post-war period. You know, Jews who came over uh, fleeing Nazi persecution in the Second World War landed in America. And it took them four years from being penniless to reach the average income of Americans um, because they didn't go for the state. And the same fork in the road happened um, with the blacks in America than uh, it was. I just had a chat with uh, Dinesh D'Souza about this, which will come out soon. But uh, it's well worth watching. Hillary's America has this new um, documentary and, and just try and get to watch it if you can. The same sort of question. And Booker T. Washington, W.E.B. Du Bois and others were sort of representing this forks, fork in the road. And Booker T. Washington s said this many years ago. He said... There is another class of colored people who make a business of keeping the troubles, the wrongs, and the hardships of the Negro race before the public, having learned that they are able to make a living out of their troubles. They have grown into the settled habit of advertising their wrongs, partly because they want sympathy and partly because it pays. Some of these people do not want the Negro to lose his grievances because they do not want to lose their jobs. Wow. That's so greedy and wrong. Well, and that to me is, is you know, making money off this kind of misery uh, is the, some of the greatest wrongs in, in the world. It, it, it's, it's like, you know, I, I mean, every, every, I, I think a lot of people like rap music. I like the beats in rap music, but I listen to the words. And a lot of the words that I hear is absolutely, I'm just, I can't believe that. Okay, we're going through this whole thing. About I know I think it was Rudy I didn't watch the what Rudy Giuliani had said but I'm pretty sure he said something along the lines of well you need to a lot of African Americans need to be taught how to respect the police I mean that's a big problem is that they're not taught how to respect the police and back back in the conversation that I had um, that night there was one person she did say this when she commented while I was talking about the way I was brought up and she's from her her family's from um, I think Togo. Togo, yeah, Togo in Africa, and she said, "Well, did you not see the way that the 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 people, or I guess I can't, I always forget his name. I feel really bad that I'm doing that. I'm kind of airhead in certain times because if I don't want to focus on something, I just completely blank it out of my mind. It's okay, you're everything really about pretty, it. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> but um, she said, did you see the way that he was acting? I mean, he was just moving around very belligerently. wasn't wasn't doing what the police were telling him to do. I mean, he was kind of just going crazy, essentially. Um, and that's probably why he got shot. Because they didn't know what he was doing. He wasn't following instructions. Yeah, look, if, if you choose to disobey a cop, 
you know, it's, it's not like I have no sympathy. It's not like, well, you deserve. I'm not saying that, but it kind of doesn't matter, deserve or not deserve. It doesn't matter. If you choose to start defying and disobeying and getting aggressive with a cop, you're not going to have a good day. Yeah. In general. Like, I'm like that again, that's behavior, not skin color. And the other thing, too, is, um, you know, I like I, I really understand why, of course, people will say to blacks, well, what do you think of this story? And, and you know, some shooting or whatever. And, and I, you know, I think that's a very interesting conversation. We've had those conversations on this show, and I think it's well worth having. On the other hand, though, to me, it wouldn't be the end of the world to, to go to an Asian person, let's say, uh, and say, what do you think of the fact that that African-Americans commit such a disproportionately large amount of crimes? Does that make you feel nervous? Or go to a cop, whether he's black or white or Asian, I don't care. Go to a cop and say, what's it like so much dealing with so many African-Americans or blacks and dealing with so few Asians? Do you think that changes your perspective? Yeah. Because I'm perfectly willing to say that there's racism if the races act the same and people treat them differently. I'm perfectly willing to do that. But Irish people have a hard time tanning, so they need to put on like chainmail SPF 6000, right? Other <laughs> ethnicities have an easier time tanning and don't need all of that stuff. <laughs> so it's not racist for tanning companies to target the Irish any more than it is for whiskey companies to target. That's just marketing. Yeah. Because the skin is reacting differently. There's differences in the biochemistry. And so with with... The blacks in America, stop breaking the law so much. Like, I don't know how to put it. Stop breaking the law so much. Now, if you, if you start behaving like Asians, and listen, I'll say this to white people, stop breaking the law so much. Start behaving like, like the Chinese, like the Japanese, like the Koreans. Stop breaking the law so much. Now, if blacks end up not breaking the law as little, or they end up obeying the law as much as the Asians do, and they're still this fear and, and hostility and with the cops and with the people and so on, okay, I'm willing to start talking about racism. But the problem is, if you keep breaking the law so much, you're going to have a tough time with the police and other people are going to be scared of you. And I'm not talking about blacks, right? There's this old thing that um, I, can't, I can't remember who it was. Some black activist was saying how, how tragic it is for him after 20 years of black activism. He hears footsteps behind him in the street at night. He turns around, he sees white people, he's relieved. <laughs> <laughs> right. So if you start behaving like other racists, Jesse Jackson, Jesse yeah. Jackson, it just yeah. came to me in a typed window. But um, this if if blacks are acting like Asians and people still have this negative fear and hostility and it's going to take a little while, then, yes, absolutely. It's talk, talking about racism. But here and this is what's fascinating about this conversation, and notice that I say fascinating and not inviting you to a Pokemon Go game, but what's fascinating about this conversation, Mudia, is that you are not acting in that aggressive whatever way, and you find that actually people have quite a positive response, and again, unless you're stealing their barbecues, but <laughs> people are having a positive response to you because your behavior is different, and therefore your skin color becomes irrelevant, because if people are only judging behavior but everyone's ascribing it to skin color, we have a disconnect that can't be solved until the behavior changes uh, or some other thing gives way in that narrative. Yeah. Uh, wow. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. And in fact, I, people had to point it out to me. They're like, oh, well, 
they would say certain things like, well, you know, it's because of my skin color that I can't, I can't, um, I guess, move up in life. And I'm just, and I would kind of look back and say, no, that's wrong. That, that's a complete lie. Um, and I think a great part of it is I had, I had a really good mentor. I've had the same mentor for the past 90 years now. Um, and he's, um, he's white and you know, he's, he's, I, 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 you know, I'm, I'm just being very transparent here. Right? I want everyone to understand who I surround myself with. I surround myself with everyone. Right. And he's always encouraged me in a positive way. He's always never really brought up race, never saw me as a black person. Um, he always just saw me as, and to him, I see him as a father figure because he's in his sixties now. He's always just saw me as Moodya. Moodya Thank you for not saying fifties. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> he's always saw me as, as, as Moodya. Moodya who has limitless potential as long as he applies himself. And that's how he's always he treat, he's treated me this entire time. Right. Um, so I, right. I do believe that there needs to be a cultural revolution in, in America when it comes to um, African-Americans. And um, there, there definitely does need it. And it's not Black Lives Matter is not the answer. That's a, that, to me, it's, that's a complete ridiculous excuse. Of, uh, and it's, it, it misrepresents me. Oh, it's insulting too. It's, it's, I mean, the idea that out there, you know, after affirmative action, after the welfare state, after massive amounts of wealth transfers and everyone making, well, not everyone, most people making very, very good faith attempts and efforts to to heal racial divisions and so on to say after all of that time that people need to be reminded that black lives matter. It's kind of an insult. You know, I mean, of course, black lives matter. Of course, I mean, of course they do. I mean, like to be, well, you know, you really got to remember that you know, it's 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 bad to kill black people. It's like, you know, the fact that you'd feel that I need to be reminded of that is not really a very positive experience for me. Yeah. And, and what gets me is when white people feel bad about I, I watched the Black Lives Matter video about um, and, you know, I, I man, it, it, it was just it was just like, oh, you know, I feel so bad. I can't even sleep at night right now because of, of what's happening to black people. And I said, well, well, hold on now. That's happening to everyone, period. I mean, that, that just happens. If you do certain things, this is what's going to happen to you. Um, I, I guess you could say I'm really on a, on a radical view here, right? For being, for being black. I, I, this is why I wanted to keep quiet in that conversation that I had. Yeah. We're going to change your name to Sally. Um, <laughs> just in the, uh, in the final, in the final thing. And, The, the sort of question around w what can be done, I mean, it, it is a challenging question, and I think certainly one of the things that needs to happen is we, we can't have this, you know, because when you bring up disproportionate amount of black crime, a lot of the answers are, well, you know, uh, black people end up as criminals because it's a racist society. Really? So words justify criminal actions. So if we take that, that negative experience of being dissed or, or whatever, having negative words thrown at you or having negative experience of people, if that justifies violence, then men should be able to beat the hell out of their nagging wives. Because, you see, the men are constantly being put down, being dissed, being nagged, being told that they're nothing, they're worthless, they're crap, they're lazy, they're this, so boom! Knock some teeth out. Now, we can't be having that. We can't be having that the response to a negative 
emotional experience that somehow that can be violence and it's like, okay, that's fine, you know, because, you know, it's a negative emotional experience. So even if there was all this racism, and I don't think there is, but you know, even if there was, the, 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 that doesn't justify the violence. Does not justify the violence. And the law is very clear on that. Verbal provocations do not justify violence as far as I understand it. Yeah. And so there the, the simply can't be a solution called, well, once everyone stops being racist, then blacks will stop committing so many crimes. Like that cannot be the answer because you're asking people to let down their guard when there's a lot of crimes being committed by a certain community. Yeah. I, th- th- but that's what abusive, you know, well, you, like abusive husbands is, well, if you loved me more, I wouldn't hit you. <laughs> well, the fact that you're hitting me doesn't make me love you. <laughs> Again, these are just thoughts off the top of my head. I don't know what the real solution is other than we can't have the state involved in the solution because that's going to be catastrophic all around. And if, see, if the state isn't part of the solution, and this is as much to do with money transfers to racial grievance as it is to the welfare state and all these other things. If the state is not part of the solution, then what happens is charities make money because they're effective. I, I, I have a feeling that, I mean, I, I, I believe I have a solution. And I think a, a big solution is we need examples. We need examples in the African-American community, r- r- real true examples. Um, I don't, I mean, how can I say it? I think we need more, uh, more Dr. Ben Carson's. You know, he's a great example in the African-American community as far as just someone who um, made something out of himself um, and wasn't, isn't perceived as a thug or a gangster and he's African-American. Um, I think that a lot of the just the the I guess the gangster rap music and things like that that promotes uh, young African American children to go and steal and kill and commit crimes needs to be somehow I don't want to say I mean we have freedom of speech right I don't want to say censored or anything but there needs to be some common sense in there like come on now you're promoting violence you know I maybe you shouldn't be promoting violence um, in these videos. But it goes back to the whole the greed thing. Um, I believe we need to have people step up in the community um, that are not just entertainers and and sports stars. Then I don't have anything against. I love basketball. I love I love football. I love it. But you know what? That should not be the the black community's examples. I I, I just do not believe that should be the, the black community's examples. Shouldn't be that. Um. But that's that's my rant. I don't I don't agree. I don't agree because I, I mean, I, certainly in America, there's tons of examples of like you know wonderful, contributing, intellectual, peaceful, successful, wealthy blacks. I mean, there's you know black middle class is pretty pretty solid in in many places. I think saying that the community just needs to more examples and so on, it's sort of like going to a communist country and saying, well, you just need harder working workers and everything. Like the incentives are all screwed up. The incentives are all screwed up. And this is not true just for the black community, but it's true for so much of society as a whole. You, you can't say to the military industrial complex, well, you know, you guys, you need to study peace, not war. It's like, cause you know, they, 
get paid billions and billions of dollars for studying war and creating death weapons and death machines all over the place. Mm-hmm. I think that the, the incentives are so messed up. So why I was talking about charity is, you know, a big problem in the black community is illegitimacy and, and all of that. So something needs to be done to solve that. One of the big drivers for Ill- illegitimacy is the welfare state. I mean, this is not a controversial statement. It's been said by many, many people. Um, uh, Walter Block said that uh, the welfare state has done what slavery couldn't do, which is to destroy the black family. So the welfare state just creates all these weird twisted incentives that we talked about with the first caller. Um, and so illegitimacy drives uh, aggression, particularly in, um, in boys. And so when you have higher illegitimacy, you're going to end up with higher levels of aggression among the boys for a variety of reasons we've gone into. We got the truth about single moms and all that as a presentation. Mm -hmm. So the welfare state's a big problem. The fact that the government tends to dump a lot of money into racial grievance industries uh, is another big problem because the Democrats get into power by goading in racial conflict, race baiting and all that. It's a simplistic way of putting it, but I think there's a lot of that pattern. And so... If the government has the power to dole out huge amounts of money to race-baiting organizations, they're not market-facing. And in fact, then they make their money by the problems not getting better, not the problems getting better. Charities make their money by making problems better, like voluntary private charities. And so if I'm – let's say I'm donating to some charity that's supposed to reduce illegitimacy in whatever community. Well, I want to see them actually reduce illegitimacy <laughs> because if, if there's three charities and one of them does three times as well, that's the one that's going to get all the money. So they make money by solving the problems. The government makes money by perpetuating the problem. So if we can sort of find a way to shift resources from involuntary government spending to voluntary private charitable spending – then they'll do whatever it takes until it works the very best that it can, because that's kind of what the free market does. But right now, the incentives are so screwed up, you know, that you can have kids with whoever, and it doesn't matter because the government's going to pick up the tab, and the government schools are so bad, you know, school vouchers or something like that. Oh, Hillary Clinton is like, uh, uh, her kids go to private school, and, and oh, her child went to private school, and somehow she wants to deny those same opportunities to all of the people who are going to vote for her because vagina plus madness. And um, so, I mean, this is just off the top of my head, but there's a huge number of incentives that fundamentally need to change. Uh, and since human beings responding to incentives is the basic of basis of most motivational things, including economics, um, until the incentives change, I don't really see the behavior changing that much, which is why um, there has to be some sort of either the government runs out of money and, and things normalize that way, or there's some recognition of what needs to be done. And people say, okay, well, the welfare state was a terrible idea. And it's going to be really hard to transition out of it now. But every day, we don't transition out of it makes it harder. And at some point, there's going to be somebody who's able to communicate that to the general population. uh, And um, maybe we'll get some solutions out of that. So I'm not saying that the, the role model thing is wrong in terms of like, it's really bad. But I think there are a lot. And I think while the economic incentives lean so much the other way, I think it's not going to be enough to overcome. I, you know, now that you put that into full perspective or just the way that you put it into full perspective to, uh, to me, I completely, I understand what you're saying. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with the, the illegitimacy part and uh, the racial grievances. Um, yeah, I see that now. All right. Yeah. Well, if you're, if you're feeling lighter, I'll quit while I'm ahead. And I really appreciate the call. It was uh, really fascinating. And um, you're certainly welcome to call back uh, anytime. Um, and I really, you know, I appreciate, you know, we're, I guess, a black guy and a white guy talking about race <laughs> in the American context. And 
um, I think that these are the important conversations we need to have. And uh, I appreciate you uh, bringing this this topic up. It was um, great for me, and I hope it was good for you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it was it was fantastic for me, and I, I really appreciate you giving me the opportunity to to speak on the show. I, I'm very thankful. It, and this, this helped me out big time. I, I do. I'm very glad. Uh, thanks, Moody. <laughs> I appreciate it. All right, let's move on to the next caller. All right, up next is David. David wrote in and said, I've listened to many of Stefan's podcasts with several different guests, and they seem to make the case that environmentalists are, quote-unquote, anti-human. I'm confused by this because all of the environmentalists that I have talked to are really concerned about the health and well-being of children, grandchildren, and all future generations of human beings when it comes to clean air, water, and soil. Can you help me understand the role of environmental regulations in a free market and a free society? What happens when your upstream neighbor decides he wants to dump all his shit in the river? That's from David. Hey, David. Hi, Stefan. Thanks for taking How you doing? Oh. My pleasure. Thanks for calling in. I love me some environmental questions, so I'm glad that you, uh, you brought it up. <laughs> oh, excellent. <All> right. Excellent. <laughs> so... I don't know. I mean, I don't know the degree to which I would say that environmentalists are anti-life. I, you know, I try not to come up with stuff like that until I at least have had the chance to talk to someone about perspectives that they may not have heard and given them the chance to digest it. So I wouldn't make a big sort of blanket statement like that. I think that some of the guests or maybe even the listeners on the show have made that case. Um, but I just sort of wanted to give you my perspective. I, I I wouldn't say that as a blanket statement. Now, if you explain to someone some very important things about the world and about how things work, and then they still reject it and still go on, although they don't come up with a counter argument, then I'm willing to go, you know, full, uh, full trolley on them, so to speak. But I wouldn't make that as a blanket statement. So yes, I'm perfectly willing to accept that they love their kids. And you know, a lot of them want to take care of their kids and all that kind of stuff, right? Right, right. All right. Robert Zubrin was uh, the guy uh, who probably was the closest along those lines. That's Z-U-B-R-I-N. You can find that, of course, at youtube.com slash free domain radio. But um, is your question more about how environmental protection would work in a free market situation or environment? Yes, I think so. I mean, that, I think that would provide the foundation, I think, for my understanding. Um, yeah, a good starting point, I think. Um, just because I guess I feel that we do need a certain amount of environmental regulation just so that we reach some sort of common ground with, you know, what we're going to do with all of our, our stuff, our, um, I don't know, our pollution that comes from just general uh, industrialization or agricultural farming or the farming of animals, for example, too. Right. Okay. So, first of all, I think I would say that we tend to have this dichotomy when it comes to thinking about human beings in the environment. The dichotomy goes something like this. When we transform materials from their natural state into some sort of finished product, then it releases things, uh, you know, volatile organic chemicals, or it releases uh, soot or smoke or carbon or whatever it's going to be. In that process of transforming raw materials into finished products, or even getting at the raw materials, we release bad stuff into the atmosphere and uh, or into the groundwater or into the ground or whatever. And that's called pollution. Right. 
And I think that's a false way of looking at it. And I'm not going to try and pull any linguistic tricks on you or redefine anything. It's just that I think we can safely say that that which harms us is a pollutant. In other words, if there's cholera in our water, that's a very dangerous pollutant, right? If there, is, uh, if there are rats running around that have fleas on them that carry the bubonic plague that can wipe out a third of European civilization, that is a very bad pollution. If people are, as they used to in, in many cities, so I guess all the cities throughout Europe up until relatively recently, if they take their excrement and dump it out the window so that it runs down the street, or if there are horses that are, you know, crapping a Buick's worth of, of, uh, human, of, of horse feces uh, every day on the streets, those are significant pollutants. Do you sort of see where I'm coming from? Yes, yes. If you, if you, if you don't have, like malaria is a giant deadly pollutant. And of course, it's, it's hu- a huge problem in Africa, at least since they stopped using DDT. So you have an airborne pollutant called malaria, which will rob you of your will to live. Like I remember when I first went to Africa, they're like, oh, the tetsi fly, you got to worry about that. And there's sleeping sickness and there's malaria and there's this and there's that. And it's like, oh, man, <laughs> it feels like there's a lot of pollution around. Can I just go back to some soot? So <laughs> if you don't have mosquito netting, then you have a very dangerous pollutant called airborne diseases from mosquitoes and so on. If you don't see, oh, well, DDT is a really bad pollutant because it might be bad for you in this and that. Well, yes, okay, but in the absence of DDT, you get death squads of, of mosquitoes dive bombing and destroying your economy and your life and so on. So, so I just really wanted to sort of point out this perspective that we look at the natural world as a non-pollutant and then we look at industrialization as a pollutant. But I don't think that's an accurate way to look at things. What we need to look at is that in the natural world, there are massive pollutants that regularly kept human beings from ever flourishing, ever surviving. And I'm not talking about lions and tigers and bears, oh my. I'm talking about all the stuff that killed human beings from time immemorial, you know, the typhus and the cholera and the bronchitis and like, oh my God, all, all the tuberculosis and, and malaria and like it, it either killed you or debilitated you or something like that or tooth decay, you know, swallow it, makes your heart explode and all that. So the question is not what do we do with pollution? The question is what do we do with the pollution that comes from us not dying of pollution, which is the, all the natural crap in the water and in the uh, air that you can't see but will wipe you out like your Hillary server. Does that make sense? Yeah. I, I, I think I follow you with all that. Um, I sort of that last part, I think I, I didn't really follow the very last piece you mentioned. Oh, sure. No, that's no, it's, it's an unusual idea. So I, I want to be clear. I'm not saying the pollution we have now is not a problem, but there's no less polluted state that we came from. What we have now is minimum pollution. Right. And we know that because human life expectancy has never been greater. Right. Right. So we have really diminished pollution by industrializing. It's not like we had this really clean land that was wonderful and not polluted, and then we industrialized and there's all this crazy pollution. As far as that which doesn't get you killed, that which is, you know, is not terrible for you, 
We, like, post-industrialization, we are in a way less polluted state than we ever were before because our water is clean. We, we don't get black lung. Uh, or even if you say, well, you know, that all came from mining and so on. Well, um, we, we don't get whatever airborne diseases were around that would just kill you as soon as you breathe in, right? I mean, the air is cleaner than it's ever been before. Our food is cleaner, right? And you want to talk about pollution, man, talk about uh, microbes in food, that can give you dysentery, which particularly if you're young, I mean, you, if you can't get clean water, I mean, you're just going to poop out your liquids until you die of dehydration and so on. And so the water is cleaner, the air is cleaner, our, our environments are more secure, we have better medicine, we have better prevention, we have uh, inoculations, we have, so we are, we have pollution to manage, don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to <laughs> wipe all of that away. But there's a perspective that I want to change. And it comes from this noble savage perspective, this Rousseauian idea, that's Garden of Eden idea, that somehow way back in time, we lived in harmony with nature, and uh, we didn't have pollution. And now we have this terrible pollution that comes from industrialization, and we need to fix it. It's like, no, when we lived in nature, we lived in a toxic environment. We live in a toxic, like even in the Roman Empire, which was one of the most advanced economies of the time, half of children died before the age of five. Now that is a toxic environment. And, you know, another half would die, you know, like before the age of 25, because, you know, particularly with um, certain illnesses uh, that affect the lungs, they knock you off in your early 20s or whatever. Tuberculosis, I think, was the, was the big one. So in the past, like in nature, that is a ridiculously, horrifyingly toxic environment for human beings. You know, the number one killer of human beings throughout most of human history, it, it's not the sort of end of life debilitating crap that happens now, you know, cancer, heart disease or anything like that. No, no, no. The most, the biggest killer of human beings throughout almost all of human history and, and prehistory was infectious disease. That's what would wipe you out. You, you didn't ever, <laughs> how many people lived to even enjoy arthritis and long teeth? Hmm. And so where we came from, as a species, was this ridiculously radioactive, toxic, death-dealing, sickness-dealing environment. Um, so, you know, for instance, uh, you know, it takes chemicals to produce sunscreen, but in the absence of sunscreen, you might get skin cancer. So it's not like, well, if we don't produce sunscreen, then we've gotten rid of pollution. No, sunlight is a pollutant, to, particularly to white people. And so, I'm, again, I just want to put this perspective in place that we're working to minimize pollution and industrialization was part of that process and remains part of that process of minimizing pollution. In other words, that which kills human beings by the billions. Does that help at least with this perspective? Absolutely. <clears throat> Absolutely. That, that perspective, uh, when you go back and look at human history, look where we've come from. I believe it does really help me understand um, that perspective on pollution. And I, I'd say, you know, and that being said, my next question would be, well, and now in our modern society, as we do manufacture more and more products and more and more chemicals, we have seen a rise in, let's say, all different types of cancers, for example. Uh, hang on, hang on, hang on. So are you saying that the prevalence of cancer has increased as a whole? Yes. But that's a function of longevity, not toxicity. Because cancers in general affect the elderly. 
the longer you live, the more likely you are to get cancer. And so as lifespan increases, rates of cancer will go up inevitably because people are just, they're living long enough to enjoy the blessings of cancer, which doesn't affect many young people. So uh, you may be right about particular instances, but in general, in general, um, cancer is, uh, an increase in, in cancer is good news insofar as it is, uh, it represents an increase in longevity. Okay. That, that makes sense. And what if we look specifically at cancer rates amongst, let us say, the youth, young people in, the, in our society? Would that, and if those rates have been increasing, wouldn't that be a sign of just an over uh, or just a, an increased amount of certain pollutions that affect our bodies in specific ways? Well, I, I guess it could be, but uh, one of the things I would be concerned about in, in analyzing this kind of data is the degree to which ridiculous levels of inactivity are plaguing the young. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was reading this article the other day. Mike, if you can find that link, I think I sent or find the article about what sitting does for you. Mm-hmm. I mean, sitting is like, it's worse than smoking as far as sort of long-term mm. health effects. I mean, there's a reason I do my show standing up, right? I mean, because I can read. And of course, as somebody who had cancer, I really like non-boomerang situation would be excellent for me and for the world, I think, too. Right. And so, you know, you have this terrible situation. Like when I was a kid, we spent a lot of time outside. We spent a lot of time playing. There was lots of gym. There was lots of PE and all that kind of stuff. I don't think that's really the case as much anymore. I think that there's a lot more inactivity. Plus, of course, when I was a kid, we were bored as hell, you know, <laughs> with no money. Uh, and and so what we did was we had to go out and we had to find ways to entertain ourselves with no money. And the way that you entertain yourselves with no money is what do you do? You you go play a game. Someone's going to have a ball, right? So you, you're running around kicking a ball. Uh, we used to play pretend war games where you're running around, da, 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 right? You climb trees. Well, that's something active. Um, what else do you do? Well, um, you will go to the garbage dump and you will try and find bits of bikes so you can create some Adam Sandler style seven different color Franken bike that you can pretend is sort of vaguely <laughs> movable and so on. We also would uh, go with pram wheels or, or with the wheels of baby carriages. We would go and make our own go-karts and then we would race them down a hill and we'd run them back up a hill and race them down a hill. And like it was, it was exercise, 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 without ever really feeling like exercise, but it was nonstop. And as a dad, you know, why would my daughter walk when she can run, right? That's like saying, I'm going to drive to Florida instead of taking a teleporting device. Like it doesn't make any sense to her. So this is why I exercise a lot still and try and stay as healthy as possible because I got to keep up with the tiny blur known as my offspring. And so when it comes to, uh, you know, inactivity is a environmental toxin. uh, And a lot of people don't, really understand that. And of course, kids are sitting all day in school. And then what do they do? They come home and they sit at home on tablets, on Playstations, uh, on um, on their phones. And um, so this is from the Telegraph um, in, uh, in the UK. Sitting in front of a computer for eight hours a day could increase your risk of a premature death by 60%. Your ass is trying to kill you. <laughs> <laughs> it is trying to smother you. Um, you have to work. You have to exercise for an hour a day just to combat sitting a- in an office. Um, inactivity, or what's called sedentary lifestyles, 
They're posing as greater risk to public health as smoking, and they're causing more deaths than obesity. Right? If you if you spending hours at your desk, five five minute break every hour. Well, they say that for your eyesight too, but uh, you've really got to work hard to to make up for sitting in an office, and uh, it's um, it's pretty rough. So, as far as young people go, we have this strange situation going on and i think this is like the this generation is the first generation that's really being raised in a pretty sedentary environment and um i don't know what the uh effects are going to be i'm sorry to bug you again mike but you can find anything on youth inactivity um said being sedentary is an environmental toxin. Like I will try and do shows while I'm walking. I will at least stand while I'm doing these shows. I don't know how Rush Limbaugh does it, but like three hours of basically uh, making sure that his chair, his ass is shaped as much as, as much like his chair as humanly possible. But um, so if, again, if this is what's occurring, maybe it's got something to do with cell phones. Maybe it's got something to do with um, uh, inactivity. It could be a number of things, um, but I don't know the degree to which we could find um because cancer and heart disease are the two most likely causes of death that are linked to inactivity. And um, I'm not saying, of course, that that's necessarily what's happening with kids because they do have the advantage of youth. But uh, it is um, uh, it's a, it's one one possibility. Uh, like I, I used to way back in the day, I used to write by sitting down. I sit there and I wrote and I wrote and I type and I'd sit and occasionally I'd get up and walk around. Now. I get on a treadmill with voice dictation software and I write by walking. And sometimes I'll be, I can't run. Uh, and occasionally I will write on a bike machine, although that gets a little breathy, although that's not. So I'm trying as much as possible to give myself the kind of activity that I didn't get before because you just have to change as you get older, especially if you've gone through a major illness, you have to, you know, introduce as much positive pro-healthy stuff as you possibly can. And um, I don't know that that health risk is really recognized by people like i i saw this is a pretty funny video about some some dad you know he was nagging his kids like kids you you know, get outside go outside it's a beautiful day stop sitting on the beanbags playing video games and what the kids had done is they'd taken their beanbags outside and they were sitting in the little window that faced the the, the basement and they were playing their video games through the window so they could still see the tv <laughs> and they're like well we're outside aren't we <laughs> well you got you got to move, people. You've got to move. <laughs> Our bodies are not designed. Bears can hibernate without any particular ill effects other than waking up uh, hungry enough to eat uh, an unwashed backpacker. But we ain't designed that way. Our bodies are designed to be in motion. And uh, that is, uh, that's a tough thing for, uh, for a lot of people. So sorry for that. I, I wanted to get that point out. So thank you for letting me shoehorn it into this dis uh, discussion. But um, you know what else is an environmental toxin? Wolves, <laughs> you know, like rats used to eat babies in the Middle Ages because <laughs> they were everywhere. And um, so, yeah, it's an environmental toxin called like yellow teeth and pack behavior. Uh, and though, you know, they're pretty, uh, pretty far gone uh, as, as all of that goes. So, um, yeah, globally, one in four adults is not even is not active enough. More than 80 percent of the world's adolescent population is insufficiently physically active 80 percent now if 80 percent of adolescents were smoking people would go mental but this is similar situation well let me ask you this 
as well. And as, as we move along with more population in the world, um, more growth um, and industrialization, how do we address the issues like what you have in Mexico City with air pollution or in Beijing with air pollution in, in uh, areas that have very few, let us say, environmental regulations? Well, I, you know, I don't want to deal with specifics because I don't know all the laws and, and all of that. So, I, you know, I, again, I'm a philosopher, not a sort of social science researcher. So I'm going to have to um, uh, go more general if, if that helps. Uh, so I'll give you some sort of suggestions uh, about how these things can be handled. And l let's start off with the one that you mentioned, because that's the one I looked yeah. up uh, and, and thought about before. Your upstream neighbor decides... He wants to dump all of his shit in the river, right? Right. Okay. Well, um, let's assume that you own the part of the river that goes past your house, right? Right. So then he is damaging your property and he would be liable. Okay. Okay. That's a pretty simple answer. I like that. <laughs> well, that's, and this is how it used to work. So again, the, the great economist and anarcho-capitalist Murray Rothbard wrote about this uh, years ago, and I'm going to paraphrase, so I apologize if I get some of the details wrong. But back in the day, if you, let's say you, you, you built some giant fire, it got out of control, and it blew all this terrible smoke and soot and ash onto your neighbor's apple orchard. Well, your neighbor would take you to court and your neighbor would say, you damaged my apple crop. It was worth this much. You owe me that much money. Right. And this is how it used to work for, for common law for many, many years. But then what happened was people started building these, you know, what were called the great satanic mills. And they were pumping out all this toxic smoke and it was damaging crops and, and all this kind of stuff. And the farmers took these guys to courts. But the government intervened and said, no, 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 the, these guys are producing a lot more taxes than you are. So to hell with you, you got to move. We're going to let them pollute so that they can hire all these people and, may, and, and pay all these salaries and, and make all these taxes and all that. And so it was the government interfering with common law, with sort of the ancient ways of resolving these disputes that turned a problem which could have been solved relatively easily into a problem that got a lot worse. Now, of course, if we're concerned about pollution, the first thing we should discourage is overconsumption, useless consumption, right? I mean, it, it, I'm still, you know, because I grew up and we had to put like coins into meter to try and get unfrozen throughout the winter. Um, I hate, I mean, I'm still working on this because I've looked at the math. It's not that bad, but I'm, I'm working on it. If a light's left on, oh man, don't even get me started, right? It's Because it, it's a waste, right? I mean, think of all of the amount of energy and time and all that to get everything out of your house just so you can light a room that's nobody's in. So we should want to not excessively consume. Now, the problem is if you put the government in charge of environmental regulations and government's in charge of everything else, when the government's in charge of everything else, they're in charge of the currency. So what they do is they borrow and they print money. Borrowing money and printing money causes massive excessive consumption in the present, right? Like you think of the $20 trillion debt that America's in. That's $20 trillion they've spent that they didn't have. In other words, that's $20 trillion worth of environmental destruction that has occurred because the government is printing all this money. Yeah. So when you turn to the government for solutions, well, it's not that great. And environmentalists should also, you know, talk about the migrant crisis in Europe because you're taking people from a low economic footprint, a low carbon footprint in the Middle East, 
to a high carbon footprint in Europe. Where are the environmentalists talking about all of that? I mean, they're they're comfortable with saying people should be poorer, people should have less because it's environmentally destructive. Molly, I want to talk about that because that's a leftist policy and a lot of environmentalism along those roles as well. So, so I would say that um, let the market deal with these things. Let civil law or you know criminal law if it's really dangerous let let civil and criminal law deal with these things and the government doesn't need to be there now with things like let's give an example and this is from my very first article called the stateless society and examination of alternatives which was kindly published by lou rockwell uh it's a little um coming up for 11 years ago i guess now and i'll just sort of mentioned the scenario briefly so you're in some house and you don't want air pollution, right? I mean, of course you don't want air pollution uh, in your environment, right? So what happens is you can either sue people and and whatever, work with the courts to try and prevent them from doing that. But I think that a more efficient way to do it is you buy clean air insurance from in a free market. And clean air insurance, you pay like 50 bucks a year. And whatever company you pay for, it's going to guarantee that your air is going to be clean. So here are people economically incented to keep the air clean because maybe they pay you a million dollars so you can move or maybe they'll pay for a new house if your air becomes dirty. So you buy this insurance and now you've got a company that's scanning all over the place, making sure nobody builds anything bad and they'll be making sure that the winds don't blow some big giant factory smoke your way. And so what I want is private property and I want people who have a market incentive to keep the air clean and you have groundwater clean insurance maybe you've built a um a house by the ocean and you want a good view and you want clean ocean water well you'd have to pay first of all if you build it you know 500 yards or meters back from the beach then you should just buy the land that leads to the beach people say oh they're building some giant house it's blocking my view of the beach it's like well That's the risk you take when you don't build right on the beach or you don't own the land between you and the beach. You saved some money, you rolled the dice, you came up snake ice. Or maybe you could buy insurance so that you always have a view of the beach. And and then somebody has an incentive, an economic, positive economic incentive to make sure that your environment stays clean. So they're out there saying, you know, well, you can't, you know, uh, somebody wants to build some big polluting factory and it's upwind from like a thousand houses, they're going to have to pay a million dollars each and then they're going to have a huge incentive. Right? They've got a billion dollars worth of incentive to do and spend whatever it takes to make sure that your air doesn't end up polluted. Now, none of these are operating in places like Shanghai or in places like Beijing or other places where the pollution is really bad. The government's in charge of everything. And the government has an economic incentive for environmental predation because environmental predation in the here and now is a sign of increased economic activity. Increased economic activity raises the GDP, makes people feel rich, makes them happy with their government, and increased GDP means more money for the government in taxes, right? So like when they build these ghost cities in China where nobody goes to live, or they build these giant malls with like three stores in it, two of which are the malls trying to sell you stores, well... The government has benefited from all of that because all of that economic activity, they got to tax. So the government benefits from useless, excessive, wasteful, the destruction of, of the Earth's resources. It profits from it enormously. 
And so if you're going to say, well, the government regulations in the way, you're creating the exact opposite incentive of what there should be, which is private, economically incentivized companies working as leanly and cleanly as possible to make sure that your environment stays clean, not governments who benefit enormously from all of this useless economic activity that they generate in order to make people feel wealthier and up their tax base. Right. Um, can you explain one more time the what is the private incent the private company incentive again? I mean, you, I know you mentioned the insurance, but just that piece, that connection there. What's the incentive for them to keep their their products clean? Which products? Um, the I guess um, like you were. You mean the air? Yes, for example, the air. Right. Okay. No, that's that's a that's a. I'm glad you asked because it's a it's a challenge, and I I'm glad you asked again. So let's just make it you and I, right? Right. So you've got some lovely house, and you know you wake up every morning, you throw wide the windows. You love smelling the, 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 the nature, right? You love smelling the grass and, and uh, all of that. And you say to me, oh, and I come knocking on your door and you say, hi. And I say, hey, listen, you love the smell of the country and the clean air and so on. You say, yes. And then I say, well, for 50 bucks a year, I'm going to guarantee you that that's never going to change. <laughs> and what would you say to me? I'd say, sign me up. <laughs> Right. Oh, oh, maybe it's a hundred bucks or whatever it is going to be. Right. <laughs> and the reason you would do that is because if it does change, not only will your quality of life diminish, but also the value of your property is going to diminish. Because if your air is clean, right, Dave, then if your air is clean, then your value of your property goes up. But if you're you know, your formerly pristine country cottage is like covered in roiling black acidic smoke from dawn till dusk. Nobody's going to want to live there. And maybe the cottage you spend a quarter of a million dollars for is not going to be worth a penny. So it's not like, so having that guarantee. Now, the question is then, how do I go about making sure that, and, and I say, listen, you pay me, you pay me a hundred bucks or whatever it's going to be a year. And if and we'll set out all of these standards, right? Whatever they're going to be. This many parts per billion of this, many parts per, per million of that, and so on. And I'm going to say, this is where you're currently at. I'm going to guarantee you to, to stay within 20% of that over the next 10 years. Or whatever. I'm just making stuff up. Whatever. It could be, could be 100%. Sorry, it could be I'm going to keep you exactly on that line for the next 10 years or 20 years or whatever, right? So I sign up a whole bunch of people, and I think lots of people would be very interested in that. So then I have a job. So I'm getting a steady flow of income as long as your air is clean. I make money as long as your air is clean. Now, if your air becomes dirty, I'm no longer making money. I'm losing money. So I'm going to have to scour around the neighborhood. I'm going to make sure that nobody creates anything really messy. If somebody wants to create um, some big smoke polluting factory just upstream from you, I'm going to find ways to discourage that. I'm going to pay them to not do it. I'm gonna, like, whatever. Like, that's my economic incentive. I make money if your air is clean. I lose money if your air becomes dirty. Now, that's the best we can hope for. Economic incentives, self-interest, that's the very best we can hope for. Hoping that some bureaucrats are going to have as much investment in your clean air as the guy who's feeding his kids based on the fact that your air is clean 
There's no bureaucrat who's going to have that kind of incentive, which is why I much prefer, in fact, infinitely prefer, not just morally, but practically these market incentives that engage everyone's maximum motivation in pursuit of the social good of, of reasonable levels of pollution and, and, you know, clean air where that's guaranteed. Does that make more sense? Yes. Yeah. I've never even considered that idea before. Um, and yeah, it does make sense. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I guess I, I, on the topic of, I guess, regulations and politics, you know, a big part of what inspired this call and this question was because of this election cycle that we're in right now and, um, and looking at the candidates and, uh, yeah, I'm a big Trump supporter and there's, and when he talks about environment, um, I'm not so much concerned with the whole global warming, um, science and global warming idea and agenda, but I am concerned just with on the ground pollution, like our whole discussion has been based on. And it, and it just kind of brings up a lot of red flags for the people I talk to when he talks about the EPA and cutting back all our present regulations that um, let us say we've, you know, a lot of environmentalists has, have worked towards for so many years. Um, and I guess some of that, some of those red flags kind of come about for me when it comes to conservation and, and maybe this is a whole new part of the discussion, but on how we conserve certain, um, land areas that we have determined here in the States, for example, and in Canada, of course, that are just exceptionally beautiful and ought to be protected for, I guess, just their intrinsic value. Sure. And, and the way that we do that is we buy them, right? I mean, environmentalists want stuff. A lot of them are hippies with no money. So they want to protect the environment, but they don't want to do the stuff that's necessary, which is go make some money and buy it. But anyway, that's uh, a topic. And lots of people want to keep like, like Banff and, and the Rockies and so on in Canada in particular and the the mountains on the west coast um, of um, America, beautiful stuff, beautiful stuff, which means people got to own stuff, right? You know, like cows, cats, dogs, they're not in danger of becoming extinct because they're owned. Right. People got to own stuff. Uh, we got to be allowed to own stuff and, and giving stuff over to the government. I mean, if you ever want to get shits and giggles sometime, just go look at um, Yosemite National Park and so on, just what a disaster the government made of it uh, when they first got a hold of it. Because they just, they have no particular incentive. Now, I don't, I know smack about Donald Trump's environmental perspective or or his, I mean, I know that he's got some skepticisms about global warming, and at least in terms of its priority and so on. But um, I will tell you this, that this is how, you know, sort of outside the box is important to think. Um Let's say Donald Trump gets his wish and we get like three or Americans get like three different levels of taxation, right? Right. It's You fill it out on the back of a postage stamp and it takes you 20 minutes, right? Mm-hmm. Do you know how good that is for the environment? Right. No, seriously. Think about it. How good is that for the environment? Tell me. Yeah, I mean, you're saving a lot in resources when it comes to, I guess, trees and ink and <laughs> printers and 
um, the people at H and R Block aren't going to do so well. Right. <laughs> so that can be so so yeah. I mean, the accountants all driving back and forth, people printing stuff out, people trying to figure stuff out, people burning the midnight oil, staying up late, running their computers, reprinting stuff out. I mean, just something like that. Boom. Simplify the tax code. Hell, if they simplify the tax code, you don't need 200 volumes to be printed every six months for whatever the tax code. I mean, just think of how helpful that is for uh, the trees. So as far as all that goes, now, if you can get environmental protection without the EPA, then the EPA is bad for the environment because the EPA has to heat their buildings. The people got to drive to work. They got to use a lot of paper, electricity, air conditioning, you name it, right? So if you can get environmental protection without the EPA, which came in under Nixon in the early 70s. I mean, it wasn't like America was on fire beforehand. And so if he says, if you can get rid of the EPA, fantastic. As long as you can still get environmental protection, I think you'll get better environmental protection. Here's what happens. So everybody wants a clean environment and that was already happening, right? The air was cleaner, the water was cleaner, the the groundwater was cleaner, um, The soil was cleaner because people want a clean environment. And there's a transition from medievalism to a modern economy called the Industrial Revolution where things are kind of crappy, but they're still better than they were before, right? So people people say, oh, well, you know, there was all this soot and and people died early of of black lung um, in, in the smog of the Industrial Revolution. And it's like, yes, they still lived longer than they did in the Middle Ages. The, the, The pollution is more obvious because you can see soot, you can't see cholera. Right. So so the the transition from the medieval world to the industrial world was a huge detoxification of the environment because they got better sanitation. They got more soap. They got better meals. They, you know, people's wages doubled. They got more protein. They got more meat and so on. Right. So that's, again, Comparing this to some pristine, magical, this is the Garden of Eden fallacy that is very common. I'm not saying Europe, but a lot of people have this kind of stuff. Um, How about this? (laughs) How about Donald Trump brings a lot of troops home? America has, what, 720 plus military bases around the world. Donald Trump brings a whole bunch of troops home. How's that for the environment? Right. You know, how 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 about he doesn't go and invade another country? How good was the war in Iraq for the environment? I mean, the, the empire is disastrous for the environment. But that particular form of, of really vicious imperialism, you know, where up to a million people died in Iraq and they depleted uranium shells and, and uh, destroyed the, the water infrastructure uh, and, and the water treatment plants and so on. I mean, you bomb one water treatment plant, you've turned water into a bioweapon as has happened many times uh, in in these kinds of conflicts. So if Donald Trump had had his way in 2003, America would not have gone to war in Iraq. Now, this is going to sound cold and callous, but just from a pure environmental standpoint, you know, you you have a kid, you raise a kid, you, you feed that kid, and if, you know, that kid at the age of 18 just gets blown up, that is a huge net loss. Because... You've poured all of this environmental resources into this kid who dies. Same thing with the American troops, same thing with the adults. Boom, dead. Okay, maybe you'll save a little money on old age pensions. But from a pure material standpoint, I mean, war is horrendous morally. War is horrendous uh, uh, from a variety of standpoints, and it's horrendous for our freedoms. But 
the environmental waste of, of pouring resources into children who then die. Uh, and they may die directly or they may die indirectly because they can't get clean water because the infrastructure has been bombed and so on. If he just brings the troops home, simplifies the tax code and allows the courts to properly deal with environmental issues the way that they were supposed to, right? The reason why the EPA had to come in is because the government paralyzed the ability of courts to deal with pollution issues because big corporations donate a lot more money than small people. And so the corporations are the ones who managed to, to cripple the court's ability to deal with environmental issues. And then because the government was interfering with that, you need another giant government program called the EPA to deal with the last clusterfrack of government programs. All the while that there's all of this excess money being printed and borrowed, which drives massive environmental consumption in, uh, in the present at the expense of the future. So I'm, you know, the government can't solve a goddamn thing. And the initiation of force is always going to produce, in the end, the opposite of what you claim to want. And so these are just off the top of my head. These are things that um, are going to be vastly better. I'll give you one other, just while I'm sort of mulling it over. Okay, great. So Donald Trump wants to, this I know for sure, he wants to do a lot to stimulate domestic production. You know, people get, oh, they get so mad that Donald Trump, he builds his ties they, uh, they're all put together overseas and so on yeah so what in apparel only three percent of it is made in america anyway so i mean it's not like he's some big exception to the rule but let's say that donald trump by hook or by crook doing whatever he does he's able to stimulate domestic demand at the expense of offshoring what effect is that going to have on the environment right no tell me <laughs> well um Ask that, can you ask that one more time? Let's say that Donald Trump changes so that stuff gets manufactured in America for Americans rather than in China. What effect does that have on the environment? Right. No, tell me. <laughs> I, no, and, and I'm just mulling it over, but I, yeah. We're shipping, right? I think, you know, locally in manufacturing areas, they might experience a little bit more pollution but i'd say overall globally which is pretty how i'm thinking about this is is it's going to be very helpful globally because you're not going to have to transport all these goods um you know if if we can keep our production more locally that is definitely one of the the best things we can do to limit our environmental impact without a doubt right and and there's another aspect of it as well it's not just the transportation it's also that there's going to be more, and I know this, I mean, I spend a lot of time in the environmental industry as, a, as an entrepreneur. Like the amount of scrubbers and cleaners on American factories is way more than what you're going to get in China, right? Plus the, the energy that goes into these factories to produce all of these goods is produced much more cleanly in America than now America uses clean coal and China, well, not so much, right? right. So not only is it the transportation issue, but also, uh, it is the fact that the energy that goes into producing the stuff in America is cleaner. The factories themselves are going to be cleaner. So it is a win-win-win on every conceivable dimension. Uh, and it means that, of course, uh, if um, uh, if the stuff is produced locally, the footprint is is lower on just about every conceivable metric. So, so there's another example of how Donald Trump's uh, stimulation of the domestic economy at the expense of the overseas economy However, it's going to happen, right? Whether it's free market reforms or whether it's tariffs, probably be some combination and so on. That is going to be um, absolutely enormously positive for the environment. Right. 
That makes that makes a lot of sense for sure. Um, I mean, if we still have a little time, can I ask the question around renewable energy, um, like solar and wind, um, some of the other renewables um, seem like a good solid source of energy for us because we're not going to run out of it. Oh, no, you do. That's the problem. You do. <laughs> because a lot of times it ain't windy and a lot of times it ain't sunny. And there's nighttime, right? This is this right. is the problem, right? You can have, um, I mean, and this problem will be solved at some point. You know, once they figure out how to get batteries to store enough energy to power a house for a fortnight. Right. And I've looked into all of this stuff, and I won't bore you with all the details. And you can do a lot um, to to supplement some of your energy requirements. But um, the, the the wind and solar, there's it's just inconsistent. And that's the big problem. Um, and uh, so you you could, you know, on a giant sunny day, I mean, you can't you can power some significant stuff. But, you know, a cloud comes over and you can't you can't stop what you're doing. You're like, oh, I'm right in the middle of, a, of, of, of doing a show, but it's raining. So we'll have to get back to you. Right. So that is the um, uh, that is the big the big problem with where it stands at the moment. Now, if the government gets out of the way then maybe we'll be better off. And the other thing, too, of course, uh, is um, if the government gets out of the way of people being able to drill for oil locally in America. If, if you drill for oil locally in America, as opposed to shipping it from the Middle East or Canada's a big one as well, well, that's going to be hugely great for the environment for a variety of reasons, um, not least of which the transportation and all of the oil tankers that occasionally go adrift and all of that kind of stuff. But... Um, it keeps money in America rather than putting it out into Saudi Arabia, where they seem to use a lot of that money to um, fund radicals. And uh, um, I think that it's a, a, um, uh, a very important aspect to allow for more, you know, that drill, baby drill thing that they talk about and all of that. So that would be my uh, uh, my sort of two cents as to how that stuff could, could work. And we'll see, you know, uh, everything that is more economically efficient that isn't heavily debt and fiat currency based is really good. Uh, and um, if the dirty, like the, the coal can be done very cleanly, but the problem is that co all the regulations that are on all of this stuff make it very, very expensive. And um, a lot of those, a lot of the taxes are pulled out of the population to pay for these green energy companies. And of course it's the fantasy, oh, it's renewable, it's green and so on. But the amount of, um, subsidies these companies require that do end up with them um, producing an, uh, crappy stuff that doesn't work and then they go out of business. Uh, that's a huge misallocation of resources, right? I mean, yeah. think think of all of these companies that, that Obama's touted and other people have touted, oh, there's a new environmental stuff, we're going to invest all this tax money into it, and they build these giant plants, and they hire all these people who drive to work, and then their companies go bankrupt. What a massive waste of our precious resources. Right. So... You know, let's just let the market take care of stuff, let the courts take care of disputes, and let um, insurance take care of prevention. And then everybody's got the right incentives. If everyone has the right incentives, that's as close to perfection as you're ever going to get. Right. Yes. All right. I'm going to move on to my last caller, but I do thank you for allowing me to indulge my <laughs> passion for environmental protection. And I agree with you about all the kids and stuff like that. But, uh, you know, if we care about the kids, we've got to reduce the size and power of the state because um, 
I don't care how clean their air is if they're living under tyranny. That's a, the ultimate toxic environment. But uh, thanks a lot, uh, David. It was a great chat. Thank you, Steph. Thanks for clarifying a lot of this stuff for me. And My pleasure. thank you in general just for all the, the hard work you do on the show. It's been really inspiring for me. I really appreciate that, David. It's very, very kind. Thanks, Steph. Have a good night. You too. All right, everybody, get comfortable. It's RK Selection Time. Up next is Virgil. Virgil wrote in and said, If the welfare state creates a force in our selected communities towards more children in the now to be taken care of by the state, does it not create a similar force in case-selected people towards relying on the state when old and fragile? An incentive for not investing in and creating a strong family to rely upon later. That's from Virgil. Hello, Virgil. How are you doing? Hello, Stefan. How are you? I'm well, thanks. And I'm going to just say to everyone, um, go watch the Gene Wars presentations and read the book by Anonymous Conservative um, on RK Selection. We'll put the link to that below. You can just do a search for Anonymous Conservative uh, and um, get the book from there. It's uh, really, really important stuff. And uh, I can't repeat it every show, but (laughs) R versus K, go do that. And then if you don't know what we're talking about. So relying on the state when old and fragile, how is that, how is it case selected to rely on the state? Sorry? How is it case selected to rely on the state? Well, because I think uh, K people somehow, I don't know if consciously or unconsciously, they are expecting to get all those guarantees later in life because of the state then they don't act now um, as if they should create a group of people around them to, I don't know, to give them support in those years in which you are actually very dependent. But case-selected people prepare for the future. Yes. They save for the future. They, uh, you know, I mean, you can't be case-selected if you're going to just consume in the, you need to save your seed crop throughout the winter and plant early and harvest late and, and conserve and conserve and measure out your rations. I mean, the whole point of K is the deferral of gratification because you are um, uh, in an environment where hard work pays off and deferral of gratification pays off and consumption in the present, uh, well, gets you dead. Yes, but the thing is that they are not managing their own money, so you get this crazy situation. Well, no, I understand that, but our selected people will consume in the present and then hope that if they throw themselves on the mercy of case-selected people in the future, then the case-selected in-group preference will mistake them for case-selected people and give them resources later. Yes. Right. So it's our selected behavior that ends up with this whole old age pension stuff to begin with, because K-selected people say, hell no, don't take my money from me and promise to give it back to me in 40 years. You're the government. Of course, there's going to be no money. And K-selected people will check the progress of that. Right. Yes. And and what they'll say, hang on, let me finish. So what they'll say is they'll say, well, wait a minute, you've taken all this money from me. Where's it going? Where's my lockbox? Where's my social security account? Where's my Canada pension account? You're just taking all this money, you're spending it, and then you're going to take that money. You didn't just take it from me, but you're going to pay for my retirement by stealing from my children? Hell no. Okay, the K-selected people push back, which is why the conservatives who are more along those lines push back or want a lockbox or don't want to prey upon the next generation. Whereas the R-selected people are like, hey, I want stuff when I'm old. (laughs) And I want to consume now. So I'm going to be, and I know the K-selected kids are going to be making a lot more money than my 
uh, loser kids. So here I go. <laughs> let's get a welfare state. Let's get a um, uh, let's get a uh, pension scheme going. So case selected people want to rely on their own savings and their own responsibility because they know that if they start handing over the power to the state, then it's going. The state is going to be swamped by all the R selected people, and all the K selected money is just going to get burnt up in frivolous, irresponsible nonsense. Yes, I think I agree with you, but I think we are also talking about K people that are not having babies, but K people that were born already in socialism. You know, I think that's one of the big things here, because you 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 are born into this system already, and it works like this. And you really believe in all of those guarantees. Like I, I know of people close to me that are getting very old and they depend, on the sta- they depend on the state exclusively and they feel very safe and relaxed. And I think that's because they actually believe they have some kind of guarantee when I see society falling down everywhere and I don't think those guarantees will actually be here. But I think they really believe in those, guarantee- in those guarantees and I think when you have gay people believing in lies, they will do things that they... How do, you know, how do you know these people? To me, if you think that the government is going to be reliable, especially now, like maybe way back in the day, you could chalk it up to displaced compassion or pathological altruism or whatever. But anybody who looks at the government now and says, oh, yeah, this is working really, really well... Not case selected by definition, because it means that they're unable to process basic math, basic reality, basic reality. Like, so for instance, Hillary Clinton gave a big vanilla speech. I'm not just talking about the color of her dress or pantsuit or whatever the hell it was, uh, the uh, chrysalis sheath of incomprehensible immorality. But uh, she gave this whole speech. Did she mention the national debt once? No, of course not. She's like the queen of our selected. She's like the queen bee. Queen R, she's not Queen B, she's Queen R, a little further down in the alphabet. And so, yeah, this like you can't talk about the national debt and how you're going to pay it off because that would be to bring mathematical reality to our selected people. And the our selected gene set tri- gets triggered and, and manifests the most when people feel that they're in a situation of infinite resources, when not handing out more money to the needy just seems mean and selfish. It's like, hold, you can't eat that blade of grass, my fellow rabbit. Why? This, like, we're never going to run out of grass. <laughs> Why the hell would you deny me that? And so, you know, the, the wolves know they're going to run out of rabbits. The rabbits never think they're going to run out of uh, grass, which they won't, mostly because of the wolves. And so if, if they think that there's sort of infinite resources or that there's nothing to worry about or the debt doesn't matter, there are selected by definition, in my opinion. So, so you, you don't think R in... K is a lot uh, genetic, g- genetical, sorry. Well, no, it's, I think it's epigenetic. In other words, uh, it is a genetic response to environmental cues. 100% I'm sorry? You think it's 100% epigenetic? You, you, don't, you don't think there is a, 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 a fixed amount? I mean, well, look, Virgil, of course I can't say it's 100% epigenetic. I'm not a geneticist and nobody knows anyway. But I think it's more environmental than it is innate simply because it is so adaptive to particular environments. It may not, the RK capacity may not be evenly distributed among the races for a variety of reasons, which you can look up J. Philip Rushton for more on that R-U-S-H-T-O-N. He's a since deceased Canadian professor who worked on this sort of stuff. So I I think it's epigenetic in general. It may not be evenly distributed among ethnicities, um, and there may be a genetic component that's independent of environment. But given that I can't do anything about 
um, genetics, I can at least focus on that, which would be environmental cues because they're the most adaptable or the ones that can be changed the most. Okay, yes, I, I, I think we were coming at this question from very different directions, and I think I got a lot from your point of views. All right, well, thank you very much for your very kind question. Uh, I always love dipping into the R versus K stuff. And again, people, you need to really look at this stuff. Um, I, you know, I'm mostly working up other people's material. I think I put it together in a pretty reasonable way. But you can look at Gene Wars, G-E-N-E Wars on uh, this channel. Uh, it's really, really important to to get an understanding of how the world works from this standpoint. And I think it's really, uh, it's very interesting stuff too. And you, you can, you get this sorting device for people that you know. It's not 100%, but it's a good and interesting place to start. So, my friends, thank you so much for a wonderful conversation. It's always a highlight of my week to be able to talk about philosophy with Yowl. And, oh, I got Hillary Clinton Southern all of a sudden. And um, freedomainradio.com slash donate to help out the show. We need your help. Thank you so much for your support. We need your help to continue to grow. We're blowing past 10 to 15 million downloads and views a month. So freedomainradio.com slash donate to help us out. Thank you so much for that. Follow me on Twitter at Stefan Molyneux. You can use our uh, Amazon affiliate link at fdrurl.com slash Amazon. You can just set it up as one of your browser's uh, tabs that may open automatically when you open your browser. And last but not least, FDR Podcasts to share the shows. And uh, thank you everyone again so much. Have yourselves a wonderful, wonderful weekend. We'll talk to you soon.